Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Monday morning, September the 12th, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. You are um, so close, but yet so far away, <laughs> right? We've got a new dynamic this morning. Yano called in sick, if I'm not mistaken, told you yesterday he didn't feel well. Called in this morning saying he had temperature of 102. Um, so we wish him speedy recovery yep uh, but you're on the other side of the glass window this morning true um it sounds like you're exactly where you always are <laughs> but for optics sake you are not um it's true okay that when you and i left friday morning the braves were in second place uh Let, let's, let's do this we gotta we gotta pay some bills yeah um this next sports section brought to you by <laughs> bird of a thousand gods want to make sure that uh, we keep bird in good standing so when we left friday the braves were in first uh, second place one half game out of first place. Okay. Um, they went to first place. They yep. went back to second place. Mm -hmm. So this morning, they're a game out in the loss column, correct? I think they're so. a game and a half out, but yes. they're a game out in the loss column. Kind of blew one yesterday, Heart from what I understand. Loss. I mean, I didn't watch any of it. I'm racing. You know, and uh, I knew it. That's why I didn't text you. Yeah, let, yeah. let me tell you, let me tell you what happened. Okay. We were behind. We, we as in the, the Braves. Braves. Okay. Yeah. For for purposes of of our discussion now, I say we. Okay, we were behind. I think six two, uh, in the eighth, and in the ninth, in the top of the ninth, uh, we went ahead. We got up seven two, and then let it. Uh, Could have been seven to two. No, Dale. no, it, it was. Oh gosh, now I forgot. But anyway, we were ahead. We 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 got four runs. I think in the ninth to go ahead. Yeah, it was seven. I guess it was six. Four maybe. Okay. Anyway, we we went ahead. It was seven six, and then two home runs in the ninth uh, by our closer. Wow, gave up two home gave up runs two home. to the yeah. Mariners. Yeah. But the yeah. Mariners are a pretty good team. <laughs> I'd be a great sports reporter. Yeah, you got I, that just right. <laughs> I'm not. I, look, it, it yeah. was. It was. I, mean, I wasn't there, but I feel like I was. It was. <laughs> ben Scully, continue. Funny. funny. Yeah. Continue, Ben. Great. <laughs> anyway, I was so. I was <laughs> that so affected ben Scully. by it. the last thirty seconds. Would have made Ben Scully so proud. <laughs> you. You're, you're right. <laughs> you I, I own that. But anyway, I, I can't even remember what the scores were. But it hurt pretty bad. I know we we had it. We were up by one uh, going into the bottom of the ninth and gave up two home runs. So. Okay. Tough break for the out for the Braves. They walked it off. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. Be ready. I think the Braves are a touch better than the Mets. Not much, but a touch better than the Mets. Depth of pitching staff. I give an edge to the Braves. I don't think the Braves have anybody better than Degrom or anybody better than Scherzer, but I think they're good enough. I mean, I think the player for player, roster for roster, I think the Braves are a touch better than the Mets. You see this? A touch. Yeah. I mean, just, I mean, that's a smidge. Quarter of an inch, eighth yeah. of an inch, uh, somewhere thereabout. But the Braves left themselves no room for error by getting down 10 and a half games. They have played 720 baseball since June 1st. I mean, that's unbelievable. And they're still in a dogfight. And the reason they're in a dogfight is they played kind of, you know, bad. They're, they're, yeah, <laughs> early I mean, in the I, season. I almost said something, but they played, they played crappy. Yeah. You know, baseball up until June 1st. Uh, and they've left themselves no room for error. And here's the deal. The odds are stacked against them because of the you know the schedule from here to the finish line. The Mets don't play a lot of good baseball teams. The Braves do. I mean, they play one another, but the Braves still have the Phillies. The Braves still have the Giants, if I'm not mistaken, to begin the night. Uh, and that's a good baseball team. Giants and Phillies are both pretty good baseball teams. So I think the scheduling favors the Mets. But, but the Braves just did not leave themselves any room for error by getting 10 and a half games down. I told you a long time back, I said, Rev... They'll get hot, and they'll play better, but it's hard to make up 10 and a half games. 
I mean, that, you know, three and a half, four and a half. Okay, you get hot and you catch them, and then you kind of in a, you know, in the in the dog days of summer, there's a pennant chase to be had. I just think the Braves are asking too much. Nobody plays 720 baseball. There's a reason nobody's ever won 117 games in the regular season. It's just too hard. It's real hard. I think 116 is the most regular season wins in a 162-game season. And the Braves are on pace since June 1st to win 116 games. Well, there's a reason that's the all-time record. It's hard to win that many baseball games. And to ask the Braves to do that from June 1st all the way to the finish line is just asking a lot. So here we are. You know, the Mets and Braves in a one-game um Will it come down to the last series of the weekend? Excuse me, the last series they play one another? Probably. I mean, obviously, that'll be a big deal if one team that would make it the exciting. Other. Yeah, no question about it. But if you think about it, it's a three-game set, right? I mean, in the Mets-Braves series at the end of the year, three-game set? I think so. Okay. Um, the odds are somebody's going to win two of three. And that's only a one game. So that's not a – I mean, if somebody were to sweep the other team, then, yeah, you pick up three games. That's a big deal. But um, but I just think the Braves, because they put themselves behind the eight ball by how they played pre-June 1st and the fact the Mets are good. I mean, the Mets are a good baseball team. Um, the Braves have just left themselves so little room for error. Now, they'll be in the playoffs, and there's some strategy here that I, you know, I kind of, I read something yesterday on, might have been CBS Sports. You don't want to take a break. You'd rather just keep playing. So, so you know, two teams get buys, right? The best two records in, in the National League will get a buy. And um, so there's kind of a, a train of thought or a school of thought that says, no, nah, just keep playing. I mean, if you're playing 650, 660 baseball, just keep playing. I mean, all you're going to do is get one more start per starter, you know, instead of sitting idly by for a week and waiting on someone to come your way. Uh, anyway, it's just kind of an interesting um, dynamic that mm. we're dealing with. Um, I don't want to make this all about the Gamecocks. Um, I didn't get to watch Clemson play Saturday. Excuse me. Yes, Saturday. Because I'm just somewhere, uh, I'm trying to think of where I was. It's kind of interesting. I was down at the beach, and and I went to a sports bar. I mean, I didn't go to drink. I went to get some chicken nuggets or something. I mean, I was hungry, watched the game, got loose to, to Arkansas. And it, this is kind of interesting. This is a factoid. You ready? Mm-hmm. Um, when I went to this place called, I'm not going to name the name, uh, but anyway, I went to a sports bar to get some chicken wings and fries. And everybody in there, we're watching Washington State, Wisconsin, uh, the Naval Academy versus whomever. Uh, they were mad because they couldn't get the Rutgers game. And I'm thinking about, wow, dude, we're in the South. There was so Are little you? interest. There were, there was, well, I mean, that's, you kind of wonder that when you cross the, uh, the intercoastal waterway, whether you're still in good old South Carolina or not. But it dawned on me, I mean, just how odd that is. Mm-hmm. And um, once again, you got Tennessee, Pittsburgh. There are more people pulling for Pittsburgh than there are Tennessee. And and you've got, you know, wow. very little interest in the Clemson game. Far more interest in these, uh, you know, hey, can you get the Rutgers game on TV? I said, man, if you turn that thing to Rutgers, I'll punch somebody in the mouth. We're in <laughs> we're in the South, man. I mean, it's, it's uh, Clemson, Carolina, you know, the SEC. And I guess to some degree, some of the ACC. Um, the ACC is not as passionate about football as the SEC, but the SEC is not as passionate about college basketball as the ACC is. But, um... You know, someone asked me, what did you what did you see about the Gamecocks? Mm-hmm. I mean, I know, I know you kind of were uh, curious as to what my opinions and takeaways were <laughs> yeah, following yeah. the Arkansas and, game. And there's some obvious negatives I wanted to know, too, if you, if there are any positives you can, you know, point out to us. Because obviously it was it was frustrating for Gamecock fans. I mean, the quarterback can throw. I mean, the, he, he's far better than anybody we've had in a long, long time. I mean, his arm talent is supreme. I mean, he's really a guy that, 
I mean, he has an electric arm. He's, he'd be like the NFL, excuse me, the Major League Baseball first round draft choice. He's only two and seventeen in his minor league career. Everybody throws ninety eight. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just keep running him out there. One day he may find himself. I mean, you know the story. Mm-hmm. I mean, there have been minor league prospects that were two and seventeen in their minor league record, uh, but they threw ninety eight miles an hour. And, and the franchise always said, "Hey, just keep running him out there." I mean, keep trying to teach him how to throw a sinker, teach him how to throw a, an off-speed pitch. I mean, very few people throw at 98. I mean, you get a lot of benefits of the doubt if you throw at 98 in baseball. Rattler is a little bit like that in uh, in college football. He has supreme arm skill. Um, now, he makes some bad decisions, and the offense looks a bit discombobulated. Um, I, don't, I don't know what to make of Saturday. I mean, Arkansas is a pretty good football team. We'll find out over the long run how good they are. Um, they kind of manhandled South Carolina up front, both offensively and defensively. That's concerning. But but when you know, here's the, here's what I noticed. You ready? Um, and I don't know what to make of this. I mean, I, I'm just I'm making an observation. I'm not accusing. I'm not saying this is good or bad or indifferent. I'm just making an observation. The Gamecock coaching staff, what most would argue, is the best conference in America. I mean, I, I think that's uh, you know we could argue, but I think most agree. Even the Clemson fans, the fair-minded Clemson fans, would agree from top to bottom the SEC is the best conference in America. I didn't say they're in a league of their own because I think their years, the ACC is better than they get credit for. Their years, the Big Ten's better than they get credit for. Um, but year in, year out, top to bottom, the SEC, I think, is clearly the best football conference in America. I think if you argue against that, you're not really being honest with yourself. Having said that, here's an oddity. Here's various, here, Here's something different about where the Gamecocks are. They have a head coach that has never been a head coach nor a coordinator. They have coordinators that have never been coordinators in Power 5 football. That's different. I mean, you look at Sam Pittman. Sam Pittman has never been a head coach uh, until Arkansas gave him the job. He's the offensive line coach at Georgia. I think he coached a little bit at Alabama. Pittman's an old hand, but he never been a coordinator. In fact, the trivia question during the Gamecock football game was, um, name a game played between two coaches who are now head coaches who have never been even coordinators. And the answer was Sam Pittman of Arkansas, Shane Beamer of South Carolina. But but Arkansas went out and paid $1.75 million for Barry Odom to be their defense coordinator. Barry Odom's a former head coach at Missouri, a very respected defensive coordinator. Um, they went and hired Kendall Bryles, I think from Baylor, if I'm not mistaken, paid him, what, $1.5 million to be the offensive coordinator. South Carolina did something different. They went out and got an assistant offensive line coach from the Carolina Panthers and a guy that had been defensive coordinator for two years at Western Kentucky and Clayton White. Now, I'm not saying those guys can't coach. And maybe there's learning pains or growing pains or an evolution that has to take place. But if you ask me the biggest difference in Arkansas and South Carolina, I think Arkansas has got a little better talent. Not a lot, but I think they've got a little better talent but they've got a proven defensive coordinator. They've got a proven offensive coordinator. They've got a head coach who's only been head coach for three years. I think this is his third year at Arkansas, and he's turned it around. But but that, to me, that's different. And I think learning on the job is a hard way to learn to the SEC. I think to learn how to be a defensive coordinator, to learn how to be an offensive coordinator, that is real hard when you're learning on the job. This is a simulator. You know, we like to joke around with politics in Washington, the flight simulator argument I make um, and you're going to pay some hard lessons when you're learning on the job in Fayetteville Arkansas in Lexington Kentucky in Gainesville in Knoxville in Athens 
And um, and t- that's just an observation. I'm not saying Clayton White can't be a good D coordinator. I'm not saying that um, Marcus Satterfield can't be a good offensive coordinator. I don't think they are right now. I mean, I think they're fair to average, but you better be real good when you suit up this Saturday against Georgia. And I think asking those coaches to learn on the job. Once again, Reb, it's not Steve Spurrier with a couple of coordinators. It's not Dabo Sweeney with a couple. It's not Nick Saban. I mean, it's a guy who's never been a head coach all of a sudden, or a coordinator. And all of a sudden, he's the head coach. And I think Shane's done a great job of branding the program. It's a little bit like Dabo. I mean, I think when you look at Beamer, you see a little bit of Dabo in Beamer. He's kind of a marketer, a brander, a salesman. Um, you wonder whether he's that involved in the offensive and defensive game plan, and you honestly wonder whether you want him that involved in the offensive and defensive game plan. When did Clemson take the next step? I mean, Clemson rolled the dice and hired a guy who never been a head coach nor a coordinator, right? But when, when did Clemson take the next step? Clemson fans know this when they hired big-time coordinators, when they got a Brent Venables to come to Clemson, when they got, I'm trying to think, Chad Morris might have been the first OC that came, uh, and that was kind of a reach. But Dabo believed in that offense and built it around those two quarterbacks that they had, you know, consecutively. Um, and once again, I'm not saying that is criticism to Carolina. I'm just saying that's different. That, that I don't think I've ever seen a coaching staff with a head coach who's never been a head coach nor a coordinator and two coordinators who have been uh, never coordinated at the Power Five um, conference football level. So, so once again, that's an observation. When someone says, what is their offensive game plan? What is their defensive game plan? I played a lot of football. I, I'll, I'll add this to it. Um, texting with a friend of mine, much more of an insider. I keep saying this. Got a buddy of mine who's real close to the program, extremely close to the program, much closer than I am. He and I were debating yesterday what is different about being a college football coach today than it was, you know, in days gone by? I think it's a harder job. And here's why I think it's a harder job. I'm going to make a lot more money, so it should be a harder job. But here's what when I played back in the day, um, there was only, I mean, it, you didn't spread the field. You didn't get, I mean, it wasn't real complicated. The NFL was always perceived as a complicated game. Um, college was a little more advanced version of high school football. Danny Ford probably had six or seven plays. Bear Bryant had probably had two or three or four plays. Uh, they, they go wishbone and the, you know, the power eye. I mean, it was a kind of a simple, simple game. And college football done went and got complicated. And, and I think the complications require you to be a real smart and, and kind of an able guy. I'm not saying the old school football coach was not, I mean, I'm not saying he was stupid. I'm not suggesting that for a second, but it was a much simpler game. And I think now it's a very complicated game. It mirrors the NFL. You've got players and mismatches and, you know, uh, skill people in space and spread the field and get to the edge and all these other sorts of terminologies that were never espoused back in the day. Now, some would argue, and I know a few that would argue, well, the game's never changed. I mean, the game has changed. Stop with that. I mean, it's still blocking and tackling. I get that. I mean, the team that blocks and tackles the best does normally win the game. But to suggest college football today is like it was 25 or 30 years ago, what have all the rule changes done? They've given advantage to the offensive football team. Uh, you can't touch anybody. You can't hit quarterbacks, targeting, and you know offensive pass interference, and they don't call holding much. Um, and I think the game is fundamentally different today than it was back in the day, and I think that requires a college football coach. Um, I, I'll say this. We talked about Griggs and you know some of the uh, disparate impact and all these other sorts of things in the, in the Griggs power, the Griggs-Duke power case. I would want my coach to take an IQ test. I mean, I really would. I'd want to know how smart my 
uh, college football coach is because I think it's a it's a very complex, complicated job now that requires a, a degree of intellect. I'm not saying that you got to be a rocket scientist to coach football, but but I think you got to be a bright person to understand this ain't your grandma's NCAA um, college football. 843-661-0937 is our number. I wanted your opinion on the Sun Belt upsets this weekend. Good too. for the Sun Belt. I mean, good for App State. I said it last week. I'll say it again. If I ran a Power 5 program, but if I were Clemson, South Carolina, Georgia, uh, UNC, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the teams that, that we kind of relate to around here, there is no way I'd schedule Coastal, Georgia Southern, <laughs> App State, um, Georgia State. There is, there's nothing to gain from playing those teams who, if you aren't careful, will beat you. I mean, Georgia Southern goes to Lincoln and beats Nebraska. Scott Frost got fired. If they had kept Scott Frost until October the 1st, they owe him $7.5 million. But that's two weeks. They got rid of him. They're going to pay him $15 million instead of $7.5 million. If they wait until wow. October the 1st, they owe him $7.5 million. I mean, if you don't think college football still matters in Lincoln. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, it, hey, so it was it, worth an extra seven and a half to get him out of there Well, here's today, what the huh? AD said. I mean, you can imagine how he said it behind closed doors. Publicly, he said, you know, I want to play our rival with a new slate. So they play Oklahoma this week. I mean, that's their, I mean, they, they split conferences. Oklahoma will be in the SEC. Nebraska left the Big 8 and went to the Big 10, uh, which is kind of, they lost a little bit of their identity in that transitioning. But yeah, I mean, if, if they if they kept Scott Frost and played Oklahoma, they probably get rolled. I mean, they probably get killed. They're probably going to get killed anyway. But they didn't – I guess, Rev, they want to show, um, you know, a Husker Nation that they're still committed to being a preeminent power in college football because they – I mean, it cost them $7.5 million to fire a guy two weeks earlier <laughs> than it would have had they not fired. But, yeah, but I mean, the story of the weekend is the Sun Belt. No doubt about it. And, um, I mean, if I'm a Gamecock or a Tiger, I don't want no part of App State. I mean, I don't want no part of Georgia State. I don't want no part of Georgia Southern. I don't want no part of Coastal Carolina – I mean, you've got better players. Obviously, at Clemson, they've got better players. But I just, I'd be real careful with, with those teams because <laughs> uh, when they put a bullseye on your back, that they come loaded for bear. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. We're a man down this morning. Yano is out sick. Rez having to do some um, uh, double duty, I guess. Running and, the controls. Well, he got to you know carry on a conversation with yours truly and uh, do the job of running the board. Let's go to the phone. Here is Breeze. Morning, Breeze. Hey, guys. Today y'all been talking about college football, but you know, I've been doing kind of an informal poll for about a, a good year now, talking to people, and then it came to a head Friday with one of uh, my wife's uh, guest friends kind of sent her about a five-page note about the problems she's had since the vaccine. But I've been talking to people, and I would encourage everybody to start talking and ask people, do you know anybody that got sick for the vaccine? That is one of many lies that we've been told. But I tell you, kid, it goes back even further. I mean, you know, there was a time when doctors prescribed cigarettes for health. Do you remember those days? I do. You know, and I tell you, a huge lie that's being told to us right now, and I'm guilty of it, is alcohol. You know, a couple of drinks tonight are actually good for you. Is everybody here? Have people red wine is good for you. Have you heard that before? I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah, two drinks, stuff like that. Well, the more research that I've been doing on the alcohol, I'm convinced now that, that it was, it's a poison. And, it's, and if you think about it, 
how do you start drinking? Well, you're you're five years old and you're at Christmas, Christmas dinner, and everybody's drinking. Not every, not every family, but most people around most most places. I you know, there's drinks around. There's a birthday party. There's drinks around. There's a football game. There's drinks around. So you know we've been indoctrinating our kids to be drunk just like we are. <laughs> you know, as I've gotten older, I've drank a lot less. But I tell you, there was a time there. Coming up through college in those early days, I, hell, I was good for a six-pack or more a day, you know? And, and then you you wonder what's really killing us here. And then you look at these these um, you know, these big food processing companies, you know, that, that are pushing all this sugar and refined foods on us. It's no wonder that we're all dying. I mean, we're getting lied to from top to bottom, backwards and forwards and everywhere else. And at the end of the day, I mean, we're just that old uh, lab rats to these people. And then they keep us alive with expensive medicines. But in reality, if we just cut out all the poisons they're feeding us, we wouldn't need all that expensive medicine to keep us alive. You know where I'm going? Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. When you think about it, let, hold on to that thought for just a second. When you think about it, I mean, today is the day after 9-11, right? 21 years mm-hmm. ago, yesterday, the world changed forever. I actually text a friend of mine. I mean, I was building truck beds for a living, sitting in a little small office. We had an office separate of the main building, but we had a little small cubicle office, not a cubicle office. It's a little, I mean, it had a time clock in it and it had a bathroom in it, but it was nothing to brag about. It had two phones in it. But, um, but when you were in a, I mean, it was kind of a manufacturing campus and I'm in a big metal building, uh, 120 by 240. And in the corner of that metal building was a little small office. That, that we kind of, um, in case you needed to use the phone or get out of the weather for a minute or two or, or three. So I'm in there arguing on a, it's a Tuesday morning, and I'm arguing about a tarp. You see these tarps that cover the loads? And I had a customer that was, I mean, he really needed his truck, and I'm trying to find out where a tarp is. Uh, I'm thinking about the tracking systems. We've, I mean, a lot has changed in 21 years. But I'm on the phone with, with a salesperson, and he says, I can't quote him exactly, but he says, oh, crap. And I'm going like, what? He said, another plane hit another building. Because remember the first plane that hit the first World Trade Center? We just assumed it was an accident. Oh, it was an accident. I mean, those sure. things have happened in New York City before. You know, a, a pilot gets lost or confused or gets out of sorts and he gets a, a little bit, you know, maybe got over his head and he flies a plane into a building. I mean, that's rare, but it has happened before in New York City. But I'm on the phone with this guy. And he, I mean, I'll never forget. I actually texted him yesterday and I said, I'll always think of you on 9-11 because he's on the phone, I'm on the phone, we're trying to find out where a tarp is, so I get my customer back in business, and he says, oh, crap. I said, what do you mean, oh, crap? Well, I mean, it wasn't oh, crap, but I said, what do you mean, oh, crap? He said, another plane hit another building, and we instantaneously hung up on one another. I mean, I had small kids, you know, and I, I mean, I wanted to know where my, something's different now. I mean, I could hear it in his voice. Uh, by the time I get out of the building, I mean, there were radios everywhere in that big building, uh, it's kind of buzzing, you know, so another plane hit another building. Everybody wants to go to the school to get their kids. I mean, it was just, but, but, but here's what the, here's the rest and residue rev of the last 21 years in one day. How many more people today are conspiracy theorists than they were prior to 9-11? How many times has our government, I mean, I'm sure the government lied to us before 9-11, but how many times since? Has the government lied to us? So when you look at the divisive nature, that the combative nature of American politics today, I think it's healthy and helpful. We spent about eight point one trillion dollars. Let me say that again: eight point one trillion dollars 
in the name of national security since we've created government agencies. That the government, the more government we have, the less conspiracy theorist you must be. So I was thinking about America. You know, I don't know if we ever did a poll. How many Americans are conspiracy theorists to some degree prior to 9-11 and how many are now? How many of you today trust your government more than you did prior to 9-11 in 2001? I mean, kind of think about that for a second, because I think that's the takeaway. I mean, I think that's the the 35,000-foot macro narrative that we're trying to digest and consume and deal with the best we can. When I talked to that guy in 2001 about a TARP and when it would be there, I kind of sort of trusted my government. I mean, I knew a little bit of Vietnam. I knew a little bit of the the uh, the Watergate and uh, and Nixon. I mean, I understood some of that, not not to an extensive level, but but since then, I mean, obviously, I've gone on a political journey because I wasn't registered to vote in two thousand one. I mean, it was three years later when I registered to vote. But but the the point I'm trying to make is whether it's some sure sugar, whether it's COVID, whether it's high fructose. I mean, we we tend to a big percentage of us tend to believe. Uh, They're not telling us the whole story. It doesn't matter what the news is. A larger and larger and larger share of Americans wonder whether whether or not we're hearing the entire story. Prior to 2001 or 9-11-2001, I think most of us took the government to some degree at face value. I mean, there's always been cynicism. There's always been contrarianism. There's always been skepticism. But I don't think it was around every corner, under every pillow. You know, turn a rock over. There's the government telling you another lie. No, I think you turned a rock over or two back then, and you find out the government might be shooting you straight. They might be doing the best you could or the best they could to tell you the truth. Since then, I think the government has really struggled in convincing the American people that they're telling us the entire story. And I was just thinking about that. You know, to me, what is the legacy of 9-11? I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's, it's the innocent lives lost. I mean, no question about it. It's the people that went to work that day that, that were doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing, when they were supposed to be doing it. And, and you know, their, their lives were vanished from the face of the planet Earth in a nanosecond. That is the human tragedy. But life goes on. And we try to understand what happened and what we've learned from it. And what I've learned from it personally is... The government since then is far less trustworthy than they were in that moment in time. Let's go to the phone. Betty in Florence. Hello, Betty. Good morning, uh, Ken. Uh, we got a problem at South Carolina. Uh, can you bring us up to date on uh, Ray Tanner and Don Staley? If we don't stop these lies, it's just like the United States of America. We got crap going on there, and we also got the same thing going on at South Carolina. Can you bring us up to date? I'd appreciate any kind of information. Thank you, Betty. Appreciate that. Yeah. Um, we found out over the weekend, I mean, BYU did an extensive search, uh, an investigation, and they found out that the, the events the Duke volleyball player alleged didn't happen i mean there's no corroborating evidence um i put something on facebook friday might have been thursday when i put it on there that i think the university owes its fan base its uh, its alumni its donors its supporters a full explanation and and i mean i said it i'll say it again i you know forgive me i mean i'm not going to be a sunshine pumper i'm not going to be a pimp nor a prostitute for my football or baseball or basketball program or the university that I closely align and associate with. I'm a big fan of the Gamecocks. My daughter's a, a student there. I want nothing but the best 
for that university. But there's some, I mean, somebody has to be held responsible for this. And it looks to me like in typical fashion, that will not be the case. Um, here, here's what we know now that we didn't know Friday. The BYU campus police, in conjunction with some local law enforcement, did an extensive investigation. They have concluded the alleged event never happened. There's no corroborating, no substantiative evidence to show that that is indeed the case. Um, I guess somebody went to Dawn Staley and said, hey, what do you say about that now? She sticks by her comments. I mean, she said she's done her own investigation. I have no idea what the hell that means. I've done my own investigation, despite what the campus police and local law enforcement in Utah says. I've done my own investigation, and I stand by my decision. To me, that's a fireable offense. Mm-hmm. I mean, to, to, to me, that that is something that you don't do. You just don't make that big a mistake and not pay any price and then not apologize for it. Not say, Double hey, down. after further review, it's obvious we made a bad decision. I think people will forgive you. I mean, I think if you say after further review, we jumped the gun, we made a bad call, we've got to clean it up. I owe BYU an apology. We need to figure out a way yeah. to reschedule this game. You made game. a decision based on what you thought you knew at the time. I made a big mistake. I jumped the gun. Now, now here's the bigger mistake. Or to me, here's the, here's the question that I don't know the answer to. Does the AD have a responsibility? to tell the coach, don't you say a word about this until we find out exactly what happened. Don Staley, Steve Spurrier, Dabo Sweeney, it doesn't matter. I mean, the chain of command is a board of trustees hires a president. A president hires an AD. An AD hires a coach. And that's the way the chain of command works inverted. I mean, that's the way it works itself back up through the chain. So, so I'm of the opinion that Don Staley has a lot of explaining to do, as does Ray Tanner have a lot of explaining to do. And, um... I like one of those a lot more than I like the other. And it has nothing to do with race with me. Stop with that nonsense. I mean, you can accuse me of whatever you choose to accuse me of. But but the basketball coach, the women's basketball coach at South Carolina made a mistake that should categor- be categorized as a fireable offense, and she didn't apologize. I mean, that's bizarre to me. She made a decision, a knee-jerk decision, on what she thought to be true. What she thought to be true was proven to not be true and she's put the university in a ridiculously embarrassing situation that she doesn't have a right to do and i'll make a prediction nothing nothing will happen and nobody will stand up to that unbelievably embarrassing decision not for don staley i don't have any idea what the president believes what what the ad believes but as a as a donor supporter i'm not an alumni but as a lifelong fan a financial supporter of the University of South Carolina's athletic program and, and the father of a student there today, I am deeply embarrassed by how the university has been portrayed at the na- rightfully, rightfully portrayed for making such a woke. Here, here's what I conclude, and then we'll go to the phone. I'm not woke nor politically correct, but you have a right to be. So for those who choose to follow the yellow brick road of wokery and political correctness, at least get your damn facts straight. I mean, when you're going to chastise a lecture to the rest of the country, at least have your facts straight when you're doing it. So this is not about Don Staley, not about Ray Tanner, not about the president of the university or the board of trustees. As a donor, a fan, and the parent of a student, you put our university in a ridiculously embarrassing situation and furthered the embarrassment 
by sticking to your story that has absolutely zero corroboration. That is a fireable offense if I've got anything to do with who stays or who goes at the University of South Carolina. Take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. 843-661-0937, our number. Someone held on during the break. Let's go to the phone. Roger in the PD. Good morning, Roger. Good morning, fellas. Uh, ditto to what you said about the chain of command, uh, Ken, a while ago. But what I was going to say, you said it wasn't corroborated what happened, even if it happened. Even if it happened. How are you going to disparage an entire university or fan base to protect what one person in the stands may say? I mean, you, if that's the case, you're never going to have a schedule. You're never going to play anybody if that's the case, if you're going to be responsible for what one idiot may say. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. And I thought about what happened in 1989 and how much has changed. You know, uh, Danny Ford was fired because he didn't go through the chain of command. He went to IPTA meetings advocating for something that hadn't went through the administration. You got a highly successful football coach that loses his job because he does that. Now, he's wised up, I believe. He wouldn't have done that today. But Dawn Staley is an activist uh, that deserves to lose her job. She is an embarrassment not only to the University of South Carolina, she's an embarrassment to the state of South Carolina. I'll agree with you, Roger. Thank you a lot. And Roger bleeds orange. I bleed garnet. Um, I hadn't thought of Ford, but he's right. Ford would go to IPTA meetings, and I think it might have been like an indoor practice facility. I mean, Clemson fans would know better than I, but he wanted something the university was not 100% behind. And the university said, hey, man, do you not understand how the chain of command works at Clemson? There's a board of trustees that hire a president. President hires an AD. AD um, hires you. And you, whatever whatever wish or, or whim you want, you go to the AD. <laughs> and then we work it through that. And Ford kind of was stubborn and, and old school and, and thought he was a little bit bigger deal than he probably really was. And he said, I don't have to do it like everybody else does it. I'm Danny Ford. I won a national championship. Next thing you know, he's unemployed. He's long, no longer the head football coach at South Carolina. Is interesting. Like, guys, this is not about women's basketball. I mean, I heard a, a couple of things over the weekend. Who cares about women's basketball anyway? Well, I mean, some do. I don't. So there, there are a few out there that do. But, but this is not about women's basketball. To Roger's point, um, I think I put in my Facebook post, I have been, um, I have been, I mean, just had rocks thrown at me in Athens, batteries in Baton Rouge. I've been told where to go in Clemson. And let's be honest, Columbia ain't a pleasant place to play every now and then. I mean, it's the heated competition brings out the best and the worst in some people. Um, but if you're going to, I mean, I, I think what Roger's saying is, okay, let's, let's for argument's sake say it did happen. And there's corroborating evidence. Somebody, a fan of BYU, yelled a racial slur at a Duke volleyball, an African-American Duke volleyball player. Are you going to hold the entire collegiate athletic system hostage and say, hey, if somebody yells at one of my players, I'll never come back here again. I mean, the absurdity of that. And that's why this is so much more. It's not about women's athletics. It's not about intercollegiate athletics. It's about wokeism and political correctness not being held into account. And somebody's got to pay a price for this. And, you know, I, I have no idea what the conversation between Ray Tanner and Don Staley sounded like. Newsflash, I was not invited to that meeting, nor should I have been invited to that meeting. But I was lieutenant governor of South Carolina, and I told Rev during the break, I remember a meeting I had when I first got hired, and I didn't know my butt from third base. 
But I remember clearly saying, don't anybody in this office not named Ken speak on behalf of the lieutenant governor's office. Nobody does that. I, look, I'm as forgiving as anybody, and I believe in second and third and fourth chances. But if word ever gets to me that you're speaking for the lieutenant governor's office, you're not going to have a job. There is not a, a chance to for that. You, you can come late. You can park in the wrong spot. You, you, know, you can do a lot of stupid things and get a second chance. If you make that mistake, you're not getting a second chance. And Don Staley made, to me, uh, the, the sort of decision that should lead to a fireable offense. But, but who believes that we will take on wokeism and political correctness in the fashion it should be? He's right. Is Don Staley a women's basketball coach or a, a political activist? And if the University of South Carolina is comfortable having a political activist as its women's basketball coach, they'll get exactly what they deserve. This will not be the last time the university is embarrassed. Um, and, and if Tanner can't kind of get his arms around that and come to grips with it and, and do what I think a stand-up AD should do, then, then let's find another AD. I'm sorry. I mean, with, with all due respect to everybody involved, something has to be addressed in this peculiar situation. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few minutes. 843-661-0937 is our number. I want to say this before we get our call. And I know we held on to the break, but I want to get this out of the way real quick, and then we'll go to the phone. If Don Staley is allowed to do this with no consequence, that's a sad day in America. Not just University of South Carolina in America. When someone um, can win an argument by being wrong about the facts just because they appear to be woke and politically correct, and we're a week into this. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, the news broke about the middle of last week. As far as I know, the university has done nothing to address the issue. There's been no official response for the university. The only thing I've heard is Don Staley saying, I stick by my investigation. I'm sorry I put the university and my athletics director in kind of a bad position. That's nowhere near adequate. That's nowhere near good enough. What needs to happen if the university is truly an institution of higher learning that holds itself to a very high and reputable standard. Let's and, go. And, and that would assume that she was sorry that she put them in that position. Well, I mean, I'm sure she's not. I mean, you don't buy that, and I don't no. buy that. But, I mean, at least there's a press release out there. Right. I mean, the, the only thing to say, Rev, is I was wrong. I mean, I jumped the gun. I made a hasty decision based on my wanting it to be right. I mean, in all honesty, that's what these woke – politically correct people i mean anything that comes down the pike that they want to be right that they just determine or make a determination from afar that it is i mean they, they've got this preconceived narrative america's racist so a byu a mormon school uh with, with a lot of white kids i mean if, if somebody says that there's a there was an athletic event at a at a mormon university where someone yelled a um a racial slur then that had to have happened I mean, of course it did, because we know how deeply racist America is, don't we? I mean, don't you, Rev? I mean, how dare you contradict the narrative that America's racist? Mm -hmm. I mean, CNN says it. MSNBC says it. The New York Times, Washington Post says it. Don Staley now says it. It's got to be true. Just because they didn't find corroborating evidence, just because they did a full-fledged investigation, that's not good enough. Don has done her own investigation. You know what her, you know what her investigation is? A predetermination that America's racist. Period. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah, it's amazing. Over 95% of the kids that go to BYU give 
two years of their life on a mission for the church. I mean, that's amazing. But my my father is probably turning over in his grave right now. He was the first man from University of South Carolina to be selected to go to the East-West Shrine Bowl game back in 1945. And I'm only one person, but I, like you, Ken, probably spend around three four thousand dollars a year with the university so as just one person until i hear an apology from don staley and ray tanner i won't give the university another penny nothing i won't even i won't go back to the ball games i mean this has got to stop i mean it's getting to a point now people are so uh, I don't know what to call it, but they're desensitized. You know, our average voting in the primaries in South Carolina is less than 24%. So one out of four people is doing the electing of our officials. I mean, it's, it's almost ignorant. But that's my two cents. I'm only one person, but, you know, it takes 100 pennies to make a dollar. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. Look, I think Don Staley has every right to be politically opinionated. I mean, I'd be careful, but I think she has every right. I mean, if she chooses to be an outspoken critic or, 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 or supporter, I think she has the right to do that. She does not have the right to cancel an athletic event in the name of the University of South Carolina. That's where it crosses the line to me. Don Staley can say whatever she chooses to say about BYU. I mean, the public square is the public square. The public domain is the public domain. I mean, I, you know, I'd probably, if I were Ray Tanner, I'd rather her kind of pump the brakes a little bit every now and then. But, but she has a right to speak however she chooses on political issues, cultural issues, social issues. I mean, she's kind of embraced the, the mantra of being a social warrior and you know, kind of a mor- morality crusader. I mean, she has every right to do that. I would never say to a coach, hey, don't you speak on politics. Don't you say anything about cultural or social issues. No, I mean, I think a coach has every right to, to give her opinion or his opinion on, on what politics or, you know, their political beliefs or their political biases or the way they see the country. But she unilaterally, from what I understand, canceled an athletic event that included a 200-year-old institution or 100 and, what, 25 or 30-year-old University of South Carolina founded, what, 1801? So it's 120 years I mean, are, are we are we there? I mean, are we there that a university representative, however, um, and, and look, I, I want to say this with full disclosure, she's as good as there is at her job. I mean, there's not a better female basketball coach in America today than Dawn Staley, period. I mean, you know, REM is the best there's ever been, but right now in America today, there is nobody that does what Dawn Staley does any better than how she does it, period. Unequivocal, but she, she is as good as there is probably the best there is in this moment in time. And she has every right to say that this is a racist country and we've got to address racism. And, and I want to be a part of um, solving the problem or identifying some of the racists. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would probably, if I'm Ray Tanner, once again, I'd probably rather her be a little more objective and a little more fair-minded and, and a little more balanced and measured. But But I can't make her be quiet. Nor should he try to make her be quiet about how, what her political opinions are, what, what her societal opinions are. But she has no business 
being allowed to cancel an athletic event based on something she heard might be true. That's the fireable offense. The, the fireable offense is not, by any stretch of the imagination, her commenting on politics, commenting on race relations, commenting on cultural issues. The fireable offense is canceling a game in the name of the university based on something she thinks might be true, she heard might be true. And, and now, when, when it's proven to be not true, she says, well, I'm still sticking with my original decision, my investigation. And it's kind of interesting. Nobody in the media, you know, anytime the University of South Carolina slips and falls, the local media in Columbia do everything they could to bury it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm talking about bury the university, make everybody look bad. You know why? Because it's a bunch of old white trustees. I mean, it, you know, that, the, the newsrooms in America have given the opportunity to make a bunch of old white conservative trustees look bad. They'll certainly take that chance. I mean, they're not going to pass on that opportunity but all of a sudden, the the black female basketball coach may have made a mistake. Oh, nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. Let's talk about recruiting. Let's talk about the Georgia game that's coming up. Let's talk about the funding, uh, the, the other, you know, the state house and all these other sorts of things. So I don't want anybody to misconstrue what I'm saying here. I'm not saying don't shut up. Keep your mouth shut about politics. No, don't say whatever you choose to say. Don't drag our state's flagship university in the middle of your racial crusade or your crusade against racism. I mean, it's absurd. And once again, if you're going to be woke and you're going to be politically correct, at least be right. At least get the story right. Now, here's kind of an interesting legality. Can BYU sue the University of South Carolina at wrongful breach of a contract? I mean, I don't, I don't have any idea. Um, is there negotiation going on behind the scenes? We don't know any of that. And I think the travesty in all this is the only comment a week after the fact and several days after we found out that BYU did. And let's give BYU a little credit. I mean, they tried to get to the bottom of it. I mean, they don't want their name to be mud. All of a sudden, they, they've got a big national story on their hands that, that a basketball series got canceled because of uh, uh, the reports that somebody in their university or associated with their university might have been a fan, might have been a student, might have been a teacher. I don't know. Nobody knew at the time, right? We were just told somebody yelled a racial slur at a Duke at an African American Duke volleyball player, and we're going to cancel basketball games based on that. We'll never play Clemson again in anything. If we do that, we'll never play Georgia. I mean, if if, if the Georgia fans come to Columbia this Saturday, I mean they're coming with a really really good football team, right? Number one. I mean number one of the country, and I mean it's twenty four and a half point underdogs. I mean we know what lies in waiting if you're, if you're a Gamecock fan. I mean, you know, uh, Buster Douglas might knock Mike Tyson out and the U.S. hockey team, do you believe in miracles? Yes, but there's always a, a puncher's chance no matter who you're playing and where you're playing. But if the Georgia fan comes to Columbia and gets a profanity yell, no, let me say this again. You ready? When the Georgia fan comes to Columbia <laughs> and gets profanity um, yelled at him, is he going to the university and say, hey, those Gamecocks mistreated me. I don't think we should ever go back to Columbia and play another football game because when I go to Athens, they're going to return the favor. I mean, it's, it's just it's spirited rivalries. It's the, it's the, the I don't know, Rev, the, the heated competition. I mean, it's not, that, that'll never, ever change. And that goes back to Roger's point. Even if it did, it's unfortunate. We wish it wouldn't happen. I wish, I wish Gamecock fans didn't, Yale profanities at Bulldog fans this Saturday, but I know they will. And you know what Georgia fans are coming to Columbia expecting? Some of that. They're absolutely expecting 
some of that. Uh, the Gamecocks go to Clemson in November. Do you think every Gamecock fan going to Clemson that has ever been there before expects for them to roll the orange carpet out? Of course not. <laughs> I mean, it's the nature of hotly contested sporting events. But nobody's going to cancel a game. I mean, can you imagine um, Kirby Smart standing in front of a podium a week from today saying, you know, we went to Columbia and took care of business, but those Gamecock fans are mean and nasty and rude, and they said some things to my players as they were getting off the bus, and because of that, I've asked my athletics director, no, no, I didn't ask anybody. I just unilaterally made a mind up that I'm not going back to Columbia. In two years, this home and home we have, in two years, I'm just not going back. And the AD can deal with I mean, can you imagine what, what that would look like? But some people are untouchable. And they're not untouchable because they're right all the time. They're untouchable because their political interest and their, their worldviews align with those who um, don't, don't want theirs challenged. So, I mean, the, the absurdity of how we got here, and once again, if it were a story about women's basketball, who gives a rat's ass at the end of the day that there are about four fan bases in America that care about women's basketball? UConn, South Carolina, Notre Dame, and I guess Stanford to some degree. I mean, you know, th those are the universities that have made a pretty big commitment to women's basketball. Um, you know, we can debate whether the Gamecock should have made that commitment to women's basketball. I don't think you can pay linebackers, you know. I mean, you put whatever you pay and don't put that money in an NIL and find you two better linebackers or, <laughs> or safeties or something would be the way I'd want to see the money spent. But and anyway, if it were a story about women's basketball, let's move on. It's not. It's a story about where we are in politics today. And, and once again, if you're going to be woke and politically correct, you don't really have to be right because you're talking. Well, oh, you know, they would have done it anyway. I mean, if given the opportunity, that, that person at BYU, they may not have said it publicly, but you know, they said it in the bathroom. You know, when they got in their car to go home, you know how those white Mormons are, right? They thought it. Sure. They thought it. I mean, these three white Mormons got in their car to go home. You know what they probably said about those African-American Duke volleyball. But the absurdity of that. Come on. Let's go to the phone. Bruce in Sumter listening to WDXY. Hi, Bruce. You're on the air. Well, thank you. Uh, Dawn Staley was wrong. Everybody knows that. She knows that. The university knows that. Ray Tanner knows it. But we've got another thing. Uh, uh, ESPN last uh, Saturday showed that wonderful, wonderful young lady, at the Arkansas game, just representing the university by waving her her banner for the flag and drunk as a skunk. And, I mean, the university is just, we're 0 for 2 right now, guys. That's all right. You know, I mean, that, that, and then yesterday she was uh, on, on all the memes and all the, you know, um, news feeds or whatnot so her mama's got to be proud of her and we've got to be proud of that university go and i thought i'd never say this in my life but go tigers thank, thank you, you sir <laughs> appreciate that yeah i mean i found this uh if you believe your team is in the gutter and they are and and you're you know you're a fan of the of the rival in other words gamecock let's use gamecock tiger as an example a gamecock player does something stupid a gamecock fan does something stupid a gamecock coach does something stupid, and the other side kind of piles on, relishes in the moment. Give it a week or two or three. Give it a, give it a year or two or three. That shoe seems to fit on both feet, uh, whether it's orange or indeed um, garnet. So that, that's enough of that. I mean, I don't want to go keep going down that road. I mean, obviously, it's a um, it's an interesting story. I will be so interesting. I'll put a bow on this. Here's what I'm interested in. Does the university formally make an announcement or 
or, or issue a release or press release in the next couple of days. I mean, that, that, that is what I'm very interested in. And what does it sound like? Does it condemn Don? I mean, Frank Martin got suspended for saying too much profanity on the, on the sidelines, right? I mean, coaches that question referees or umpires, they get fined for questioning referees or umpires. What is the price Don Staley makes for such an egregious misjudgment? That's my question. I mean, Dawn is what Dawn is. I mean, she's a social activist. She, she's a racial agitator, and she's the head coach at the University of South Carolina basketball team. What does the university do in response? Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. I actually did a good bit of work on some of these Senate races, some of the House races. I've got a pretty good, um, I think, uh, it's not an illustration on the radio, but I've got a pretty good analytic of what I think is going to happen as we move closer to uh, the midterm elections, but this this story, this Don Staley, Don ah, Don Staley story has really um ginned up the juices, so to speak. And before we move on to another subject, I don't know. I detect a little bit of an edge, a little bit of anger in your voice when you're talking about uh, well, your university, I'm university angry, you love. I'm angry that we're a week out of Don making these remarks, and the university has not said a word. I mean that that. To, to me, you can't be that negligent of your responsibility. The university has to go on the record about what it's done, what it's going to do. How did it resolve this? I mean, internally. I mean, did Dawn just wake up one day and, and hear this or read this or somebody told her this and say, hey, we're canceling this game? Did she call Ray Tanner? Did she call the president? Did, did the president say, no, Dawn, pump the brakes? Did the, did, the, did the AD say, I don't have any idea? Those are questions that I think we as fans, donors, alumni, supporters have a right to know. I don't need to know all the dirty details. But, but Dawn Staley made a big mistake that put a university in an embarrassingly um, complicated situation, or really just an unnecessary embarrassing situation. What, what are they going to do about it? I mean, do we just kind of hope it blows over, hunker down? See, see, Rev, that, that's what frustrates me. I mean, in my world, you can't hunker down and hope it blows over. You just can't. I mean, the bank will call you. You know, your customer will call you. In, in the private sector, there is no hunkering down and just hope it blows over. Wait it out. I mean, I know in politics we can do that, and they do that in, in, the, in the public sector. I mean, that goes back to insulating itself from the realities of the free market. But, but I, I am, I'm, I'm really, really frustrated that the University of South Carolina has not officially announced anything in regards to itself being put in this ridiculously embarrassing situation by its female uh, basketball coach. That's what I'm, I don't know if I'm angry, I'm extremely frustrated by that. What Dawn Staley did doesn't surprise me because I've watched her work for about five or six years. I mean, does it surprise me that Dawn Staley took the, the national media at its word? No, of course it doesn't. I mean, it fit her worldview. It fits the way she believes the world works. But when proven wrong, somebody must take responsibility. And nobody up until today has taken any sort of responsibility. And the University of South Carolina owes its alumni, its fans, its donors, its supporters better than that. Let's go to the phone. Sam in Darlington, good morning. Morning, guys. Um, I, I'm not as, as interested as most people are in the uh, South Carolina basketball program and political correctness in that, but um, I think there's a tie-in 
there a bit of a tie-in here to how the mainstream media and the the government really and is is treating um, our foreign policy. Uh, there's so, uh, especially a foreign policy towards Russia. Um, it's just like Russia can do nothing right. Uh, they are totally wrong. They, Putin is the same as Hitler, et cetera, et cetera. And, and uh, one of the things, uh, one of the factors, I think it's maybe not the biggest factor, but one factor is that Putin is politically incorrect. Uh, he is... Um, and and the Russian people are they they reacted um, they have reacted to the Soviet Union and the seventy years of what they went through with that by by saying you know we don't want to 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 go the the radical left wing way we want to sort of go back to like what we were before the revolution we're going to give the Russian Orthodox Church a lot of say in what we do we we're not going to go down the road of of um, the sexual revolution and, you know, we're not going to have gay pride parades in Moscow and so forth. And uh, and I think that may be one reason that, that the mainstream media just can't see anything good about them. And it looks like they won't rest until Putin is overthrown and his head is delivered on a silver platter to Hillary Clinton. You know, it's just a a remarkable um, wolf pack sort of effect there. I do think the having said that, I think the main driver of our, what I think is unnecessary antagonism to Russia and to China is, um, and to Iran is the, the profit motive of the military industrial complex. But uh, that, to me, that is, that that's where the real problem is. And, um, that's what I'm saying. Would you about. like to see you? You and I disagree on a lot of issues, but this is one place that I think we're kind of sort of in about the same in the same sandbox, at least. Yeah. Would Would you like to see us pull back from our presence on the global stage, or do you believe that we emphasize American imperialism? To, in other words, do, do you believe we can be the loudest voice in in global affairs? without insisting or requiring people to be subservient to American imperialism. Yes, uh, that, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, I don't say, you know, they, they accuse us of being uh, isolationists. No, I'm, I'm not isolated. I don't want to withdraw from the world. That's not the point. It's, the point is let's, let's be fair and let's, uh, let's tell the truth about things. I mean, um, what Russia has done in Ukraine is is no different. Uh, in fact, there's some evidence that they've been they've actually been a little bit kinder to civilians than we were in Afghanistan and and uh, Iraq and in fighting you know and in Syria. So um, let, let's let's be willing to admit that somebody else might have a a right to live without asking our permission. Yeah, I, I think that's. I think we're all on the same page. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. Kind of an interesting point of view, especially the day after 9-11. We spent $8.1 trillion in the military-industrial complex. Where did that money go? I mean, I think this is where Sam and I are in somewhat agreement. And here's the balance. Can we be can, can we be the loudest and most effective voice on the global stage without requiring a certain obedience 
to the American orthodoxy, the American agenda. Now, but that gets into real complicated foreign affairs. I was thinking about this, read something yesterday afternoon uh, about 9-11, and it was talking about the skeptics. You know, there's still some who believe it was a staged event. I mean, I don't for the life of me believe that that was a staged event. I mean, there are some that do. I mean, 3% of America believe that the government had something to do with flying those planes into those buildings. I can't get there. They're, they're, as little as I trust the government, even I can't get there. But but I do believe, to Sam's point, that the second it happened, the members, the, the membership of what I call the military-industrial complex didn't shed a tear for the loss of human life. They quickly began understanding with clarity how they could seize this moment. But I do believe that. Once again, I don't believe for a second, as about 2.5% of Americans do, that the government was behind orchestrating or organizing any of these sorts of, uh, of, of you know, disasters, that, that, you know, the terrible loss of human life. But, but do, do I believe that there are people in the Beltway that never shed a tear, but rather went to their office, got on their computer, and, and figured out how to seize the moment introduce the i mean just expand this this american imperial yeah absolutely i do to the tune of about 8.1 trillion dollars where did that money go now the majority of it was you know invested in uh as sam said the military industrial complex in america um that that's not a conspiracy theory i think got to be a bit naive to believe that everybody's heart was broken in that moment in time. I mean, mine was, you know, nobody likes to see pain and suffering that those families have had to deal with. Nobody likes to see that. But but the world moves on and the the world adjusts accordingly. And I think the biggest adjustment America made was seizing that moment and and trying to reorganize the Middle East and put a lot of money in the bank accounts of, you know, the military industrial complex. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD. Morning, Larry. Boy, I'll tell you, y'all took a left turn on me all of a sudden. Well, take a ride. That's fine. Go go back the <laughs> well, other way. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll try to hit both of them real quick. Um, the problem you got with this wokeism is that there. you said it. There's a Dawn sees the world a certain way. She's all too ready to believe any story that, that fits that. They jump out ahead of it. They make these demands. They make these big moves. When they get caught. When it comes back and they say, well, actually, that didn't happen, what will happen is this. If Don Staley says anything, it will be this. Well, it might not have been that way this time, but we all know that these sort of things are going on, and it's too important to take a chance being silent before we have all the facts. That's what you get every time. How do we know that this is going on? Because they say so. Because every time they try to prove it with a news story, it always ends up being false. And I'm with you. If you want to be woke, if you want to say that America is this, that, or the other, good. Wait till you got a real actual example of it, and then just hammer us on it. You know? But they can't. They can't wait. They just make something up. They run with whatever they hear because they're so ready to believe it. But all you'll get... The only thing you'll get from her that's ever anything we're close to a walk back will be, well, it wasn't. We didn't catch you racist jerks this time, but we know you're out there and we'll be watching. That's what you'll get. So you can forget that. The other thing I was going to say is, you know, we really do need to learn as Americans how to not 
hold the world up to, as you said, our orthodoxy, because our orthodoxy changes every four to eight years. The truth of the matter is, in the current state of politics in the United States, we're a very unreliable global partner. I mean, and, and not that I'm sympathetic to Iran, but, you know, Obama puts in this, this agreement with Iran. We think it's a bad agreement. It, it doesn't last two years. Trump comes into office, yanks it all back out. Now, if you're Iran, you go, you can't count on America. Soon as the political parties shift, you know, they'll, they'll walk back on their deals. They'll welch on their bets. They'll undo their treaties. So, you know, we're not, you know, because of the great divide that we have in our country right now, we really don't have a lot of business making a lot of demands on the political stage because chances are, in a very short period of time, there's going to be a shift in our political uh, power, and we're going to be 180 degrees out of phase with what we said just a few years ago. And that makes us unreliable, in my opinion. So that, that's one major reason why we shouldn't be quite as demanding on the national stage, because we don't have the unity of, of thought to follow any of these long-term commitments through. That's interesting. Thank you, Larry. In a representative republic, what do we do? We vote political leadership in and out of office. And um, it's a little bit, when Larry's talking, I'm thinking about the heavy hand of government. The heavy hand of government is the heavy hand of government is the heavy hand of government until the heavy hand of government starts pushing in a lot of different places. In other words, the heavy, I mean, we've got the heaviest hand of all governments. No question about it. I mean, despite our issues, despite our uh, our apparent discombobulation, we're still the biggest dog in the in, in the hunt. I mean, th- there's no doubt about that. But but if our heavy hand was pushing in exactly the same place, th- the world could address accordingly. The world could adjust accordingly. I'm sorry, and th- the world could kind of deal with it. We don't like it, but but we can kind of deal with it. But all of a sudden, the heaviest hand's pushing here for four years, and then it pushes over there for four more years. Uh, wait a minute, two years midterms, they may push over here. A little bit and that puts the world i don't want to say at our mercy but it confuses a lot of what the world should do in relation to u.s foreign policy um i'm not an isolationist by any stretch but i am very much turning into an extreme non-interventionist i mean i really and truly am but because i just look back at what we were told and what the outcomes have been and they're just inconsistent i mean there's kind of a truth line here you know here's what we were told Okay, I'm on board with that. I mean, if these things, I mean, if the Middle East embraces democracy, hell yeah, you know, put me in, coach. I want to be on that team. But all of a sudden, there, there, there's this, you know, there's this track of thought. We think the Middle East will embrace democracy based on what? <laughs> I mean, somebody should have asked that question. You know, when the when the Bushies got around the table and decided to invade the Middle East and basically, you know, kill Saddam Hussein. And, and I'm not, look, I'm not, I'm not scholarly enough to understand the nuances. I mean, if John Bolton were here and some of the military admirals were here, I'm, I'm sure they could explain it in a much more detailed version. But, but once again, geology with a Kung Fu grip. The concept was we're going to do all these marvelous and stupendous things and the Middle East will embrace democracy. Somebody in that room had to say, based on what? What makes you believe that? I mean, we've got more military weapons, more military personnel, a bigger military budget than anybody ever has on this planet. But do we have the ability to change hearts and minds? And I think we've always underestimated the cost of changing hearts and minds. Yeah, we can turn a desert into a glass field. I mean, there's no doubt about it. We we can militarily dominate that part of the world. 
But when we were told after 9-11 that we've got this mission we're all on, and, and as a byproduct of, you know, finding the bad guys and rooting out the bad guys, we're going to introduce a, a part of the world to democracy that have never, I mean, that's an American orthodoxy. That's something we believe in. We believe in republicanism and democracy and, and representative republics and free government and, and self-governance. I mean, give me an example of them ever believing in that, them being, you know, the Middle Easterners. And there's just no example of that. Uh, and, and the Muslim population in particular, and I just remember thinking to myself, look, I'm not an admiral. I'm not a general. I'm not a brigadier. I don't have any idea what those people know that I don't know. But nothing leads me to believe that that part of the world is going to embrace these American views and values, no matter how much we spend. $8.1 trillion down the road, is the Middle East more democratic today than they were pre-9-11? Pretty hard argument to make. Take a break. Back in a minute. You know, I think one of the interesting, talking about, you know, foreign affairs and foreign policy and American government and uh, the relationship we have with countries, good relationships with some countries, not so good with others. Uh, when Queen Elizabeth, I've read a lot about her being a mother or a grandmother, a wife, a friend, an associate, um, you know, kind of the, the rock, the anchor that held the British. Uh, anyway, uh, 70 years of being in charge. Uh, she's still a monarchist. I mean, yes, she was a mother and a grandmother and a wife and a friend. I get all that. But she was still um, head of a monarch. And as someone who believes in um, republicanism, um, hereditary monarchies aren't my cup of tea, so to speak. Hot tea, I would imagine, uh, there instead of the uh, the cold iced tea with sugar in it like we like. But uh, I don't know. I'm not. It's easy to be. It's easy to get entranced by the pomp and circumstance of royalty and you know, it's still, I mean, let's think about it, guys. She was a grandmother. She was a mother. She was a friend. The one thing I think she did better than, than even I probably gave her credit for was the ability to remain somewhat neutral. I mean, the, the, the 70 year of neutrality is probably her greatest skill. I mean, she talked a lot yeah. late in her life about her Christian faith and how that had been kind of the compass and anchor in her life. But, but yeah, I mean, she's a mother, she's a grandmother, she's all these things that human beings are, but she was still head of a monarch that took a lot of advantage of colonialism, correct? I mean, the monarch, she was head of state of over 30 nations in her run as queen. Uh, just think of that, head of state is over 30 nations. Here's the most interesting stat, you ready? Brexit, the, the people that voted, the people in England that voted for Brexit, you know the one thing that they would have voted against it? If the Queen had said so, 60% of the people who voted for Brexit in support of leaving the European Union would have changed their mind had the Queen asked them. Mm. I mean, I can't relate to that. But once again, I've never been a part of an hereditary monarchy. Uh, my life and living and existence has been in a kind of a representative Repu republicanism would be what it is. Um, You're kind of royalty around here. Well, I mean, I'm not royalty anywhere. <laughs> I can assure you of that. And I know my place in that sort of um, sort of standing. But but I, I just think it's interesting that we get um, wooed, you know, by, by the, 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 the regal and the royal and all these other sorts of things. It's still a monarch that took pretty distinct advantage of colonialism. Let's go to the phone. Mike Page with Florence County GOP joins us on the phone next. Hey, Mike. Hey, Dave and Ken, hope you guys are doing well. Ken, you were talking about something a while ago that uh, I have really changed my mind about, and that's interventionism. 
I had a friend of mine, Sergeant Major Harry B. Jackson, big influence in my life when I was in Mullins. And uh, he was one of the first persons I went to to talk about, okay, should we go into Iraq? Should we go into um, Kuwait? And he looked me dead in the eyes and said, absolutely no. He said a little more flowery than, than I just did. But he was a veteran of the Korean War and the, the Vietnam War. And, um, I mean, I, I, it's amazing um, how many people would almost stand at attention and salute that guy. And um, I think I've moved over to him. And uh, in the same way, I said, we don't need to be going to all these places like we need to do. But we also live in, like you said, a democratic republic. And it's important who we put into office. And, folks, we need to really get active right now because after Labor Day, this is when the political season comes. You're going to be drowned out with all the ads and stuff. But I really want you all to help. Uh, we're having our monthly meeting tomorrow evening at the McClendigan uh, administrative annex at 500 South Dargan Street. And if you want to know how your uh, taxes and money flow through Florence School District 1 and you want to know how that works, come tomorrow. Dr. Richard O'Malley and Laura show will be there to tell us that. And she has a great presentation and it's very informative. But also, uh, we have a stump coming up this Saturday at 10 o'clock to meet your candidate so you can have one on one FaceTime with them. It's this Saturday at 1611 South Irby Street, right next to the New Planet Fitness. And I sure would love for you guys to come out and help this Democratic Republican keep Republicanism running well. I appreciate it, Ken. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Kind of an interesting, uh, you know, uh, start, uh, kind of a starting point and then change the conversation to his work in the Republican Party. I've done a lot of work toward the end of last week and over the weekend um, on what I think is going to happen. I told you Labor Day, I feel like I owe you a critique or a, um, a summation of where it looks like we are and where it looks like we're going to be headed. Robert's agreed to come on the show probably toward the end of this week, first of next week. He's got about six or eight polls in the field that he wants to look at some of the cross tabs and and reference points to make sure he understands with clarity. I mean, let's be honest. He wants to he wants to wait until after he goes on Hannity and after he goes on Fox and after he does, you know, why. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I get that. I mean, if you can be in, in a, on a show with millions and millions of viewers or, you know, listeners or a show with thousands and thousands, you'd probably choose to show with millions and millions. And I get that. But there's some, Robert's agreed to come on and he and I talked a little bit toward the end of last week about, believe it or not, Gamecock Athletics and some of the uh, coaching shenanigans that we will address at some point in time. We hope the university will address it in some way, shape or form. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. I want to go back to Queen England, uh, the Queen of England. I, I said something a second ago that someone uh, agreed with. The the life of neutrality. I mean, once again, I am not a big fan of the monarchy. I mean, I'm just not. I'm not critical of the monarch because I don't answer to it. I'm not beholden uh, to it. It was odd to me when I read that 60% of the people who voted for Brexit, and that was Europe, excuse me, um, England leaving the European Union, would have voted against it had the queen said so but she remained very neutral in a lot of that and i think her neutrality added to the flavor of dignity that, that a lot of people associate her with once again um she's a grandmother she's a mother she's a friend um she, she's a lot of those things in a humanistic way but she still uh presided over a monarch that uh, was heavily influenced by colonialism where a lot of people didn't have, you know, humanitarian rights. And, uh, I mean, you, you can read a lot about it. I mean, you know, I've tried to read it the best I know how and understand um, 
head of state for over 30 countries in her 70-year um, reign. But, but if you're somebody who has libertarianism or Jeffersonian biases, it's hard to get to a place of embracing uh, an hereditary monarch. Um, talk about winning the ovarian lottery. <laughs> That's being born on third, and uh, I don't think she ever thought she had a triple, though. Is that fair? I mean, I think she embraced the fact that, yeah, okay, uh, this is not about me, but rather the symbol mm-hmm. of the monarch. Take a break. Back in a minute. Okay, we're exactly one week past Labor Day, so it's time to really start paying close attention to the midterms. I mean, the balance of power with the American government, not the monarch, but the American government. I mean, nobody gets to stay in office 70 years here in the good old U.S. of A. I want to go back real quick. Queen Elizabeth, I think, as I think about it, and I'm not a student of the of the royal family by any stretch of the imagination, but her her ability to be neutral for as long as she was able to be neutral is probably her biggest gift to Great Britain. Once again, 30 nations. I mean, she was head of state, officially and unofficially. I mean, what sort of governing capacity did she have? Well, I can tell you this. If 60% of the people who voted for Brexit said they would have changed their mind, had the Queen um, asked them to, that, that may not be an official capacity. So you're saying she could have had much more political influence. And she chose not to. Hmm. Yeah. I think she understood to that. To her credit, yeah, I guess. Well, let me t- very much to her credit. Now, now, you know, what about King um, Charles? King Charles. I mean, he, he's had a lot of political things to say about climate change and uh, some of the other realities or practicalities of the world around us. But, yeah, I mean, that, that, to me, Reb, she had the ability to influence, but she chose not to. I think the few times she did influence were, were by and large, for good. I mean, it was in a very dignified, um, non-aggressive sort of way. Now, now, once again, I don't remember 50 years ago. I mean, she was in. I mean, she was on her throne for 70 John Brown years, um, and, and and remained neutral by and large. I mean, I don't remember the Queen saying anything about Brexit. I mean, imagine the consequence of a. Um, I mean, if you're voting on a referendum that says we're leaving the European, yeah, that's a pretty. I mean, that's a pretty big moment in Great Britain's history, in England's history. But um, she chose to kind of sort of remain neutral despite having the ability to heavily influence what may or may not have happened. Um, Why are people voting in the midterms? Jeff and I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago about abortion. To some degree, he's right. To some degree, the stats don't bear that out. Uh, The majority of people are still voting, Republicans and Democrats, about the economy. I mean, it went from 78% March to 77% in August. So the economy is still the number one reason people will vote for one political party, one candidate, or the other. Um, abortion went from 43 to 56%. I mean, that's a pretty big increase, but it's not from 43 to 85%. I mean, it's still behind, let me get my glasses here to make sure I get this list exactly right. It's still behind gun policy. It's still behind violent crime. It's still behind health care. It's still behind voting policies. It's still behind Supreme Court appointments and education. I mean, abortion has increased from, once again, 43. I'll tell you this. It is now ahead of energy policy immigration when it was not prior to Roe v. Wade being overturned. So abortion is more front and center, but it's not anywhere near front and center. That's about the economy, violent crime, health care, and voting policies, voting irregularities. If you're a Republican, 
voter suppression if you are a, a Democrat. So the economy remains the dominant midterm voting issue, um, but abortion has grown somewhat in importance. Not quite as much as I think the Democrats were hoping, but, but it has become a bigger part of why people are voting in the midterms. So then you go to the generic congressional ballot. Um, I think this is kind of interesting because the generic congressional ballot is driven by two things. It's driven by the popularity or not of the president, current president, and it's driven by right track, wrong track, you know, is America on the right track or the wrong track? And we've talked a lot about extensively. Uh, We've regurgitated those stats and figures and data more than I care to mention. Now, here's a little bit of a uh, kind of an oddity here. Robert and I talked a little bit last week. That's why you got to be careful with the the popularity of the current president. Because normally former presidents aren't this involved. Does that make sense? I mean, this is not all about Joe Biden. This is very unique because you got a guy who doesn't believe he lost and wants to run again to prove he didn't lose. So it's, you know, it's not about, it's not a referendum on Biden and Biden alone. I mean, if it were a referendum on Biden and Biden alone, I mean, I think it even looks better for the Republicans, but Trump can't help himself. (laughs) He's got to be in the middle of it and he is in the middle of it. And some want him in the middle, some don't want him in the middle, but, but, when you look at the generic congressional ballot and the recent history, I have surmised that it looks more like 2014 than anywhere. I mean, I looked at 08, I looked at 12, excuse me, I looked at 08. I, looked, I actually went back to 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, uh, you know, some of the midterms, uh, not all the midterms, but I talked about election cycles. So some of the president runs, somebody doesn't run. Um, but Labor Day weekend is historically been the unofficial start of the general election um, season. I'm not saying it, you know, it designates, but I know when I ran for office that the summertime, okay, you campaigned a little bit, you did this and you did that, but come Labor Day, you better have your game face on. I mean, you better mean business and you better be ready to get out and beat the bushes and, you know, kiss babies and hug people and thank them for their support and ask them for their support. Um, Right now we're in a, it's, it's, it's fairly close to a statistical dead heat. In generic Republican versus generic Democrat. It's ebbed and flowed over the past couple of years. There's been a day or two or three that the Democrats had the upper hand, a day or three, two or three that the Republicans have had the upper hand. The withdrawal from Afghanistan was the day that we saw a pretty serious uptick in Republican, you know, the, the support of a generic Republican over the generic Democrat. Some of the January 6 hearings did work because when um when they when they would have these revelations. And the media would jump on board. You saw kind of a down, uh, kind of a down tick amongst Republican primary. I'm not sorry, but um, independents voting for the generic Republican. But I went back and looked at 2014. I looked at 10. There's some similarities. Looked at 12. Um, but 14 seems to me to be um, when you graph, when you chart, when you look at some of the um, uh, where the Republicans are, where the Democrats are. Neither side had a greater than 2.5 percent lead through the entire primary season. Uh, most of the time, it was a single point. In 2014, that's similar. That's kind of sort of where we were in 2014. Um, on election day in 2014, the the Republican Party had about a 5.7% national vote win over the Democrats. Um, that translated to a pickup of nine Senate seats. Now, I'll get to why that matters here in a second, because the Democrats were playing a lot more defense in the 14 cycle than they are in the 22 cycle. 
They picked up 13 House seats. A big pickup of the Senate, uh, a decent pickup of the House, but not one of these, um, you know, not, not a red wave, not 64 seats like there were, I think, in 2010. It was at 58. I mean, it's uh, it was a big number in 2010. Uh, what was the number in 2010? I had it written down here somewhere. Uh, it was a big number. I can't remember what it was. It was in excess of 50 seats. Um, I don't see that happening. And the reason I don't see that happening is the, the I mean, there's not that many seats in play and the Republicans already have, what, 181-ish? So, so there, there's not a lot of gains to be made there. I think it, there's a 75% chance, uh, probably maybe 80% chance. Uh, let's go this, Rev. Let's be aggressive. You ready? Mm-hmm. There's a 90% chance that the Republicans win the House. I mean, if there's a 90% chance it's going to rain, you probably need to carry your umbrella, right? 50-50, yeah. I may carry it, I may not carry it. Pretty much. I'd bet on it. I think there's a 90% chance that the Republicans win the House. Do they win the Senate? That's why I went back and looked at the generic congressional ballot and some of the reason people are voting. And I've concluded, Rev, that they do win the Senate. And this is a little bit of an outlier uh, from what the mainstream media say. Really? The mainstream, yeah. I mean, the mainstream media is trying to convince you that the, the Republicans are not going to take control of the House and the Democrats are going to pick up seats in the U.S. Senate. Now, now, once again, there's still time for things to happen. But here's the way I see it in the United States Senate. Um, and this is why it matters, guys, because the Democrats have said if they get the majority, they've got the majority today in Kamala Harris, but they've got two problems. Their two problems are Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. They're, just, they're, they're answering to a swing state. Uh, Manchin's not even answered to a swing state. His approvals have plummeted. I don't know if you saw this or not. No. When it looked oh, like he good. was trying to hold off the liberal agenda, his approvals in his home state of West Virginia were nearly 70%. I knew that. Even the Republicans were like, man, thank God for Joe Man- Manchin, because if we didn't have him, we'd have this big green deal and you know all these other crazy things that the liberals want. But when he gave in to that scaled-down uh, build back better, I mean, that's kind of what it was. It was a kind of a um oh no it's the inflation reduction act what well, the inflation reduction act but i mean oh, yeah. it really and truly That's what it, was, it was named it was that a green what it does it was a green energy giveaway i mean it was a green energy giveaway right, exactly. and he's going to get screwed i mean they're not going to give him what he wants I mean, they made a deal with him they promised him something about permitting and coal and you know fossil fuel energy they're not going to do it i mean i'll assure you of this they, they've got him to vote the way they wanted him to vote They'll throw him in the trash. That's what Democrats do. They're not going to vote to streamline. Can you imagine today's Democrat House and Senate voting to streamline permitting for fossil fuel industries? I mean, just, just ask out loud. I mean, just answer that out loud. I mean, the Democrats are in the majority. Manchin believes the Democrat majority is going to allow him to insert a bill that streamlines, that streamlines the funding of fossil fuel or permitting of fossil fuel industry and business. Ain't no way jack period that will never happen with this radical liberal democrat party so let's go back to the senate they've got two problems they've got cinema they've got mansion they need 52 because if cinema and mansion don't vote then they you know and they're they're identified okay where they're looking i mean they, they believe that if if um if they can win pennsylvania and they can win ohio they get 52. I mean, that's where they're making a lot of big investments, but it's not trending their way. I mean, I don't want to be um, I, I, I don't want to be the, the rah-rah guy. 
because I because I I'm normally the contrary end of the negative. Yeah, doom. But, but, but you said uh, you think that the the tide is actually well, there, leaning no that doubt. way. That there, there is the no doubt. Right, the now, now, once again, the Republicans are famous for screwing things up. Sure. But right now, it looks to me like. Uh, well, let's do this. Let's go through a few states. Um, and by the way, the number from 2010 is 63 seats. Okay, 63 and seats. And it was a 6.8% popular vote margin for the Republicans. But I don't think we've got that chance. I mean, I, there are not that many seats in play. The Republicans already have some of those 63 seats. Right. I think the Republicans could pick up 15 seats, 10 to 15 seats. That's enough. You get the majority. Um, and I think it's all about the Senate. Can the Republicans control the United States Senate? I'm here to say the Monday after Labor Day, they can and will, unless something crazy happens. So, look, let's take Florida out of play. I mean, I know some of the national pundits have Florida in play. Um, what is his name? Val Deming and uh, Marco Rubio. That's not in play. I mean, that's just simply not going to happen. Now, to show you I'm fair-minded, there's some out there that say Washington. Patty, Patty Murray from Washington is a Democrat within the margin of error. That ain't going to happen. I mean, Murray's going to win Washington as a Democrat. Rubio's going to win Florida as a Republican. Now, now the media will say these are within the margin of error. Well, depending on what poll you look at and read and believe in, are they within the margin of error or not? Rubio's going to win Florida, not by 10 percentage points, but by three or four percentage points. Fairly comfortably, Murray's going to win as the Democrat's going to win in Washington by a similar margin. I saw an Emerson poll the other day that had that race at two points. No, she's going to win by probably four or five points, just as Marco Rubio is going to win in Florida. So here's what it boils down to. you got a hold in Washington. you got a hold in Florida. The national media is saying both those are in play. I don't think they are. I think both get their, you know, that they hold serve in Florida. They hold serve in Washington. Here's where it gets interesting. Portman retires in Ohio. I think J.D. Vance is a sure thing to be a senator in Ohio. I don't think the DNC can invest enough money in Ohio to beat J.D. Vance. So J.D. Vance is going to be the next U.S. senator from the great state, Rust Belt state of Ohio. Pennsylvania, I'm less certain, but it's trending Oz's way. I mean, when you look at some of the exit, excuse me, some of the internal polling for both campaigns, I mean, they'll, they'll divulge some of the information they have. Um, it looks to me like Fetterman is still in the lead but the gap is closing a lot. Um, we'll get Robert to talk a lot about Pennsylvania. Now, here's the problem with Pennsylvania. Let, let's stay on Pennsylvania for a second. They've done very little to address some of the election malfunctions that we found out about in 2020. I mean, they, they've just not been as aggressive as some of these other states have. Arizona's been fairly aggressive. Georgia's been extremely aggressive. And making sure drop boxes and unsolicited mail-in ballots and chain of custody and all these other sorts of things are um are not treated in the midterm as they were in 2020. Pennsylvania is a big question mark. Let's put a question mark beside Pennsylvania. I still think Fetterman leads, but I think it's very much within the margin of error, and the the wind seems to be in Oz's sail. Let's go to Arizona. This is the most interesting race as far as I'm concerned because this is the guy. I mean, this is a little bit selfish on my part. I really want Blake Masters to win because he is a true-believing, America first, non-intervention, um, China-hating, 
you know, non-globalist Republican. I mean, I don't think that's a farce. I don't think it's a put on. I don't think it's a marketing scheme or brand. I think Blake Masters is the real deal when it comes to America first Republicans. I'm going to put a question mark because I'm going to go back to that in just a second. Um, Because once again, those would be splits. If Fetterman wins in Pennsylvania, the, I mean, he, he would take the place of a Republican. If, um, if Masters wins in Arizona, he'll take the place of the astronaut. So you've got kind of um, kind of an, an, an interesting dynamic there. That would be kind of a swap. I think the I think the Republican holes in Florida. I think the Democrat holes in Washington, Pennsylvania, and um, Arizona are the two that I'm most interested in and concerned with. And I'll get back to that in just a second. Here are two other states that that we need to talk a lot about: Nevada. I'm ready to say this morning. For what it's worth, that Nevada is now a lean Republican. It is no longer a toss-up. Um, Cortez Mastro and Laxalt, of course, Cortez Mastro, the incumbent Democrat, and um, and Laxalt, the, the the challenging Republican, they are in a dead heat, statistical dead heat. Here's the difference, and here's where you're getting cross tabs and trying to really understand some of the polling. In Nevada, 30% of the vote is Hispanic. The Hispanics are breaking Republican on every turn. The Hispanics are significantly underpolled. And some of these, um, what I'll call, uh, I don't want to say, they're not internal polling. I mean, these are the external polling. These would be news agencies. I mean, it would be whomever hires Trafalgar to do this. Here's what they're not doing. They're not waiting, and it's what Robert tells me, they're not waiting the Hispanic vote in Arizona nor Nevada as they should. And if they wait the Nevada and Arizona, if they begin waiting Hispanics, what what they're doing, Rev, they're they're, they're taking a lot of extrapolating models and they're making the assumption, this is Robert, not me, they're making the assumption that historical averages apply to the Hispanic vote in Arizona and Nevada. Ain't no way that's the case. The Hispanics in Arizona are going to vote 50% for the Republican. The Hispanics in Nevada are going to vote 50% for the Republican. And if that happens, if that trend holds true, and that's a national trend, that's not just in Nevada, not just in Arizona, that is a national trend. And if that national trend holds true, they win Nevada and they win Arizona. I mean, I, I think they're in a better place in Arizona than they are, excuse me, in Nevada, than they are in Arizona. For some reason, Laxalt is just kind of taking, I mean, he's a good candidate. I mean, I'm not saying Masters is not, but Masters is a controversial candidate. Laxalt is not as, I don't know, this is it's not like an insult, but I don't mean it to be an insult. He's not as out there. I mean, Masters is out there. Remember the first ad he ran? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, Masters is a very provocative About the election, the political candidate. election. I mean, the first thing the voters of Arizona heard come out Blake Masters' mouth is, I think Donald Trump won the 2020 election. I mean, that was this introductory ad. We actually played it on the air, and I called Kahaley, and I said, you can't do that. I mean, you can't say that coming out of the chute. He said, you can't in South Carolina, but you can in Arizona. You can in Georgia. And there's this personal experience reality that a lot of people in Arizona have. They know somebody who didn't questions, highly questions the outcome of the election. Georgia is the same way. It looks to me like, let's go to Georgia. It looks to me like that Herschel is beginning to really dig in. There's a base that have concluded, hey, Walker is probably not, I mean, I loved him as a football player. I'm not sure I'm going to love him going to Washington. 
I think the Republicans could have done a little bit differently. I didn't say better. I said differently than finding a football hero. But it looks to me like in Georgia, the Republicans are really coming home and rallying around Herschel Walker. If the Republicans in Georgia vote for Herschel Walker, he'll win. Period. There's there are more Republicans in Georgia than there are in uh, than there are Democrats. In fact, I think um, uh, what's the governor's name? Uh, Kemp. Kemp. I think Kemp's up about eight or nine. But Kemp is kind of a he's done a masterful job in dealing with the Trump phenomenon. I mean, everybody knows that Walker's Herschel, excuse me, Herschel is Trump's guy in Georgia. Well, that okay, that 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 helps in the primary, but it can be net negative in the general. So when Kemp runs, you know, plus eight, Walker's at plus three. Why is Walker not? Why is Walker running five points behind Kemp? That's the Trump baggage. I mean, that, that's some of the national media narrative. And that's just some of the, you know, some of the independents say, man, I don't want a guy that Trump has anything to do with. Now, but that goes back to the argument I make in 2024. Trump can win, but Trump can lose. DeSantis can't lose. I mean, under the current circumstance and where we are today, Ron DeSantis cannot lose a presidential election against Joe Biden. Trump could. Now, now some are willing to take that risk because they want Trump again. I get that. But when you get to Georgia, it looks to me like the Republicans are really coming home and rallying around uh, a Georgia native, a football hero, and a Trump endorsement. That, that's kind of an interesting mix in Georgia. Hold on to that. I want to come back to Arizona and, um, and Nevada in just a minute. 843 is our number. I've tried to walk you through some of these states. We left one out. Rev was asking about. North Carolina. Okay. No, when the national trends are this much in a party's favor, there's no way Beasley beats Bud in North Carolina. I mean, I just, for the life of me, can't get there. Um, you got a retiring senator in North Carolina. It's, an, it's a non-incumbent race. But but everything about North, it's not as red as South Carolina. I mean, you got the research triangle. You've got a lot of, um, you've got an urban area in Charlotte. You got a, a kind of a metropolitan area. So combine the research triangle with the metropolitan Charlotte area, you're going to have a lot of Democrat votes there. But the national, tra- I would worry about North Carolina if the right track, wrong track number were different and the current approval of the, of the president. In other words, the, the approval rating of the current president is going to make it good for Georgia. I mean, Arizona is a swing state. I mean, there's no question about it. Um, Pennsylvania is a swing state. Georgia is not a swing state. It's simply not. I mean, I don't buy that. I think Georgia was a kind of a malfunction of the political process. Now, now how much did voting irregularities have to do with Georgia? We'll never know. I mean, you believe it had something to do with it. I Mm -hmm. believe it had something to do with it. Pennsylvania is another story. Pennsylvania and Arizona are truly swing states. And I think swing state, North Carolina is still not a swing state. I mean, it's getting there. And if we don't do something to address, um, you know, the minority outreach and uh, the the educated white female, I mean, you know, there's some places that Republicans are without question hemorrhaging some support. But when you look at North Carolina, Florida, Ohio, Georgia, I would worry about those four. If Biden's approvals were 46 or 7 or 8, or I mean, if he's 50 or above, there's no doubt they're swing states. When the right track, wrong track is, you know, 60-40 instead of 70-30. But when you look at Georgia, North Carolina, when you look at Ohio, when you look at Florida, th- those lean Republican anyway, and they're going to lean even more heavily to the Republican because of the macro. 
Arizona and Pennsylvania are the ones that are hard to really get your arms around. Um, those are two states we believe had a lot of issues in voting discrepancy. In fact, the Republican primary winner in Arizona basically said, we just talked about it, you know, I think Trump won the 2020 election. That that creates a little bit of conspiracy theorist amongst some of the independent voters that, that don't like Biden. Masters is a true believer. That's why I'm so interested in this race in Arizona. Can a true believing America first Republican win in a swing state? It's the most, to, to me, it's the most interesting political experiment of this election cycle. I think Bud wins in North Carolina. Why? Because North Carolina is still somewhat red and all the macros favor the Republican. Can, can, can Vance win in Ohio? Yeah. Why? Because Ohio's kind of somewhat red and the macros favor. So North Carolina, Rubio, Bud, and Vance are going to win because they're in somewhat red states, not not blood red. I mean, they ain't in Wyoming. It's in South Carolina. I mean, I'm not arguing that Ohio is overwhelmingly Republican. North Carolina, overwhelmingly Republican. Florida, overwhelmingly. No, I'm not arguing that at all. But they, And they would be less red if Biden's approvals were 47 or 8 and the right track, wrong track was 57-43. I mean, you, you're in dogfights if that's the case. Now, now, once again, how can he be saying this with what I've heard about the national media? Blake Masters is 11 points down. No, Blake Masters has never been 11 points down. If Blake Masters is 11 points down, Arizona's not a swing state, right? I mean, nobody wins a swing state by 11 points. They just don't. That doesn't happen. So, so the reason I'm so, I mean, let, let's see the last poll. Emerson did a poll on um, Thursday last week. Kelly plus two. So the Democrat in an Emerson poll has Kelly plus two. That sounds about right to me. He's an incumbent. He's an astronaut. <laughs> he hasn't done anything in the Senate, but he's still an incumbent, and he's an astronaut, and he's got this, um, you know, my wife got nearly killed, you know, and, and public safety and gun violence and all these other sorts of things. But when I look at, the, the two states I'm talking about here in Nevada, I'm, I'm trying to convince myself, and, and maybe I'm rah-rahing to the home team, I'm trying to convince myself that there's a way the Republicans can win the Senate and lose Pennsylvania. Because Oz is an odd candidate. You'll accept that. I mean, you, you want him to no, win, but, no, no but doubt. He, he's an odd candidate. I mean, he, he's a, um, is he a political misfit? I don't know. I don't have any idea. I don't know what he really is. What I mean, asking asking the Repub- asking the independent voter in Pennsylvania to choose Dr. Oz just sounds weird to me. <laughs> Once again, I don't have any data to show that the independents find him weird. Something tells me that the independents in Pennsylvania are going like, I don't want to vote with his Oz guy or not, man. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's, it's not rocket science to most people. Do I know you? Do I like you? Obviously, they know him. Do they like him? I think they're still kind of scratching their heads trying to figure out whether they do or not. Now, now here's what I would do if I'm in Pennsylvania. And I got to believe if I figured it out, they have. I would show Fetterman to be extreme. I mean, he's a nut job. I mean, he's a big goofball. I mean, that's what I would. In other words, um, I don't know that I could ever convince the independent voter that Oz is the guy next door. So don't try. Why would I spend money? I could do it with J.D. Vance. I mean, I can do it with Marco Rubio. I can do it with Bud. I can do it with Laxalt, but I can't do it with Oz. His name is Dr. Oz. You're not going to make him the guy next door. So instead of trying to make him the guy next door, let's illustrate how extreme this big goofball. And I always found this interesting. 
um, in some of the summertime articles I read, it talked about how um, impaired a candidate Dr. Oz was. And I'm like, the, the other guy is recovering from a stroke. Mm-hmm. He has trouble, does not have the ability to, trouble to speak. I mean, he yeah. can't communicate to people. Poor guy. Yeah, I mean, it, it's terrible. I mean, I don't wish that on anybody. No. But that's why people having strokes probably don't need to run for the Senate. Right. You know, you need to recover and kind of get your wits about you. Recover, take therapy, do all the things that your medical staff or doctors advise you to do, and then one day run for Senate. But they're desperate for power. They'll do anything in this world to make sure they control the Senate. And I think they're beginning. When I see these divisive speeches by Biden, I'm hearing desperation. And I'm not a big, I mean, you know me, I'm not a cheerleader. I mean, I'm the mayor of Realville, and I try to call it like I see it. And when I see Biden being as aggressive as he's been and addressing half the country, I mean, he insulted, I watched a little bit of Stephanopoulos yesterday. He wasn't there because he works every other week. But I watched Stephanopoulos. He had one of these uh, White House reporters on ABC, not Carl, but it's another guy. A guy with the, with the hair parted just right and all. You know, you know the one. Blue suit, red tie, hair parted just right. White guy, probably six foot, 180. Um, goes to the gym three times a week. Vegan. Um, <laughs> he has all the qualifications. <laughs> sure, I'm a checks and boxes galore. Um, are you a vegan? Yeah, okay, you can host. But if you, but if you eat meat, you can't come and host. <laughs> Stephen, George won't let us do that if you eat meat. Uh, anyway, um, he kind of um, he kind of got caught up in the moment. And Stephanopoulos has done it long enough to not get caught up in the moment. This guy is not. So when Christie said that if Joe Biden believes it's good strategy to insult, uh, aggressively insult half the country, he'll have another thing coming. And, and the guy jumps in. I mean, he's the moderator. He's fair and balanced, right? I mean, this is a guy that does the job of making sure all opinions are uh, accounted for. He says, um, well, Chris, you're not a MAGA Republican. Did you feel insulted? He said, yes, I did. I absolutely felt insulted. And then uh, Christie goes on to say he voted for Trump in 2020. So, so the Trump voter, it, 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 maybe I'm trying to convince myself that, that something I want to happen is going to happen. I normally don't do that. I normally don't fall victim to that. In fact, I'm the guy that kind of talks himself out of believing, uh, being optimistic. I mean, I'm not the guy that says, okay, I'm going to wake up Saturday morning thinking about the 56 things that have to go right for the Gamecocks to beat Georgia. I'm normally the guy thinking about the 20 things that don't need to happen to keep the score, you know, with some, some respectable. You, you see where I'm headed? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not a sunshine pumper. I've never been a sunshine pumper. I don't like sunshine pumping. I don't like sunshine pumpers. I mean, I think they're just fundamentally dishonest in their assertions and their assumptions and their, and their analysis. But when I look at Nevada and I look at Arizona and I see the na- and here's what here's here's the macro here's the cross tab as Robert would call it here's why I'm optimistic the Hispanic vote it's 33 percent in Arizona it's 30 percent in Nevada and the Democrats can win if that Hispanic vote vote breaks 75 25 80 20 to the Democrat but right now it looks like that Hispanic vote everywhere in the country is going to break 50 50. And if the Hispanic vote, which makes up, once again, 30% of the population in Nevada, 33% of the population in Arizona, if the Hispanic vote breaks 50-50, Masters wins and Laxalt wins. And it doesn't matter what happens in Pennsylvania then. Now, now the other problem, and here's where the the Democrats have a problem similar to uh, the Republicans. Excuse me, the, um, the Republicans have a problem similar to the Democrats. Remember we talked about the Democrats have the majority, but they kind of don't. 
I mean, they can't do everything they want to do because Cinema and Mansion have proven to be somewhat difficult. Our problem is Romney and Murkowski and maybe Susan um, Collins of Maine. You know, they've not proven to be real reliable when it comes to uh, the America First agenda or enacting an America First agenda. So you got to have, you really need 52 if you're Republicans. And until Romney to take a, you know, as Archie Bunker said, a short walk on a long pier. Um, <laughs> And I said, Archie, I think you meant long walk on a short pier. And he famously said, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but but you got to deal with Romney and you got to deal with Murkowski. And I, I want to save this for tomorrow, but Murkowski's a genius. I mean, she is an absolute genius. I mean, you, How's that? Well, you go back and look. Um, the lady knew that she could not win a Republican primary. So she figured out a way to institute this, you know, ranked choice, this primary voting system. Uh, remember in 2010, she lost a primary and then she won a write-in campaign. So, um, so in other words, Murkowski is not trying to win over Republicans. She's just winning by reorganizing. She's trying to avoid a primary in a normal election cycle. Um, now it did allow the first Democrat to ever be elected since 1973 to a statewide seat or excuse me, and a, uh, a member of Congress. Remember, Palin got beat a couple of weeks ago in one of these um, ranked choice voting systems. So you, you know you can't count on Murkowski. I mean, Murkowski may be, she may run as a Republican, but she's more of a, she's probably more of a Democrat than she is a Republican. Um, and, and once again, instead of trying to win the Republican primary, she just figured out a way to abolish the Republican primary <laughs> by coming up with a, um, a ranked choice ballots or a ranked choice ballot system um <laughs> which is kind of an open party contest it's much easier for somebody like murkowski to win but but am i making sense i mean i, I want to oh, conclude yeah. with this i mean uh I, i'm fairly i'm not terribly optimistic but i'm fairly optimistic about nevada i'm fair I'm, I'm optimistic about ohio i'm optimistic about florida i mean i know what the polls say about north carolina and Georgia, I just feel good about the macro trend and the fact that those states lean red anyway. Arizona concerns me. Nevada concerns me. Pennsylvania concerns me. But the advantage we've got, we're playing defense and only one. we got to win Pennsylvania. I'm, I'm trying to talk myself into Republicans into believing there's a way to gain control of the Senate without winning Pennsylvania. I'm just glad to hear your analysis because I guess I've just been watching – too much mainstream well, I mean, media. It's summertime polling. I mean, that's all. It, it means nothing. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Made some observations much earlier this morning of the football situation at South Carolina and Clemson. We try to critique the best we could uh, the weekend events. Uh, as far as the Gamecocks, I mean, I didn't get to watch Clemson play. They're playing Furman. I understand uh, that their defense didn't look quite as good as it normally does, and their offense has issues. I'll give you a summation of what I see as Clemson. You ready? Yep. There, w- there was a, a moment in time for the last, what, six or seven or eight years that Clemson was as good as anybody in America. That included Georgia and Alabama. Today, they aren't. I mean, they're better than everybody else, but they're not as good as Alabama and Georgia. They seem to struggle offensively. Um, you know, uh, Deshaun Watson came in as one of the top quarterbacks in America, and he was as good as advertised. Trevor Lawrence came in as one of the best quarterbacks in all of America, as good as advertised. 
DJ Ugalele or whatever his name. I'm probably butchering the last name. Um, but he came in. I'm pretty sure it's not Ugalele. Well, I mean, Ugalele or. Uh, uh, well, that's pretty close. Yeah, pretty close. Yeah, it's close enough for me. Anyway, he came in as you one of the. Ungalele. Well, I mean, yeah, Ungalele. Uh, anyway, he came in as one of the highly, highly rated quarterbacks. Hadn't been as good as advertised. I mean, what did Meatloaf say? Two out of three ain't bad. They've had three consecutive five-star quarterbacks. They've got another kid in the fold, they think, that'll be as good as the others. But um, Watson is good as advertised. Lawrence is good as advertised. Um, DJ, not as good as advertised. If DJ is as good as advertised, yeah, I mean they're elite. They're as good as Georgia and Alabama. Um, Alabama had some issues this weekend, but they've still got a bona fide superstar at quarterback. And Georgia looks like, to me, they are just – in a world of their own right now. Wow. And um, guess who comes calling to Williams-Brice mm. this weekend? I was looking um, during the break a second ago. So the Gamecocks played number one Georgia. They still have in their schedule. They just got through playing currently number 10-ranked Arkansas. So you leave 10-ranked Arkansas. I mean, Arkansas wasn't number 10. And who knows how good these teams are. Uh, I've often said, you didn't have five top 25 wins. Uh, you beat them when they were in the top 25. But that team's two and nine. I mean, it's obvious they were overrated. Notre Dame was, what, number five in the preseason? They're 0-2. <laughs> I mean, I don't know where they are, but they ain't number five in America. But anyway, the Gamecocks played uh, a top 25 Arkansas, top 20 Arkansas. Uh, this week, they played number one Georgia. Still got to play number five Clemson, number nine Kentucky, number 15 Tennessee, number 18 Florida, number 24 Texas A&M. Um, so, it, you know, that ain't a good place to, to learn. Uh, you better be. You better have your feces consolidated when you show up on the field with those um with those teams. But once again, Clemson is still really good. I mean, their defense is nasty. Um, I heard from a Clemson friend that they had some issues this weekend, uh, and I hate to say this, but you're playing Furman, and you're probably not quite as motivated as you would be if you were playing a team that you felt had um similar talent. But they just don't. I mean, I'm telling you, they're just not. I mean, if Georgia and Alabama and Clemson were in a kind of a, a three-way competition for who's the best team, very few people would pick Clemson. And up until last year, Clemson would have gotten as many votes as Georgia or Alabama. But it seems to me right now, the two-headed monster that was Alabama and Clemson is still a two-headed monster, but Georgia has replaced Clemson as the first or second head. I mean, Georgia defending national champion, number one in America, Alabama number two, and they win the championship about every other year. So you got to believe this is kind of their year to win it, to win it again since they didn't win it last year. And unless Clemson gets better offensively and gets more consistent play out of the quarterback, they're they're not going to compete at that level. I mean, they'll beat everybody else because they're just phenomenally talented, but they're not going to beat Alabama, Georgia, maybe even Ohio State or Oklahoma unless they clean up some of that some of those offensive problems they have. I made an observation on the Gamecocks, and this is not a, a criticism, just simply an observation. You kind of looked at me like, I hadn't thought of that, that the Gamecocks are in the toughest league in America. How much tougher? That's debatable. But year in, year out, top to bottom, the SEC is the best football conference in America. I didn't say the SEC, I didn't say the ACC sucks. I didn't say the Big Ten is in decline. I didn't say any of that. Everybody's league has good teams. But top to bottom, year in, year out, the SEC is the best football league in all of America. I don't know how you argue that they aren't. The Gamecocks are in that league as an average talented team. I mean, I've seen some of the uh, player prospect analysis 
they're somewhere between 20 and 30. So they're not terribly untalented, that they're not unbelievably talented, like Clemson, Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, Oklahoma, but they ain't bad. Here's what I observed. And once again, not a criticism, not a condemnation. They have a head coach that has never been a head coach nor a coordinator. That's a bit different. They have a offensive coordinator that has never been an offensive coordinator at Power 5 school. They hired him as the assistant offensive line coach of the Carolina Panthers. They have a D coordinator who has never been a D coordinator at a Power 5 school. Juxtapose that to Arkansas. Arkansas has a head coach that has never been a head coach before. But you know what he does have? He's got Barry Odom as his D.C., who is a former head coach at Missouri and a well-respected defensive coordinator. He's got Kendall Bryles as his O.C., who left Baylor to come to, to Arkansas. So he's got proven commodities at the coordinator positions, uh, despite the uncertainty, because I think, um, uh, what's his name, uh, the head coach at um, uh, Pittman? Yeah, Sam Pittman is the head coach at, at Arkansas. So, so once again, that's not a criticism. That is simply an observation, and the SEC is a hard place to learn on the fly. I mean, on-the-job training is real hard if you're playing Arkansas and Georgia and Clemson and Kentucky and a, you know, and a Texas A&M, and um, you, you said it better than I. The story of the weekend in college football was the Sun Belt. Mm-hmm. Wow. And who doesn't pull for David? You know what I mean? And, and this David Goliath. I mean, who doesn't, as much of an SEC homer as I can be, I mean, I'm pulling for App State. You know, I'm, I'm pulling for all these smaller teams to get a chance to step up and play the big boys on, and, you know, under their terms and conditions. Uh, I think Marshall got, what, $1.5 million to go to Notre Dame. And beat them. Wonder when the thundering <laughs> herd will ever get invited back to South Bend. So, anyway, that's kind of um, uh, that's just an observation that I'm making about Clemson and South Carolina. Quickly, um, a lack of experience on the staff at South Carolina – in a league that is hard to learn on the job. At Clemson, it appears to me that there's been a little bit of a decline on the offensive side of the ball, while Georgia and Alabama have both kind of stayed as elite as they ever have been. Let's go to the phone. If Clemson fans disagree or Gamecock fans, I mean, hey, we'll we'll hash it out over the airwaves. There you go. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Morning, David. Hey, good morning. I uh, hope uh, my man's freehold gets better. That's good advice, Ken. Pull for David. I I like that. Uh, you had your your personal story this morning about 9-11. Um, you know, that was a cool, crisp, sunny day. I know you said it was on a Tuesday, and I was living in Cordova, South Carolina, right off the Canterbridge Road. And the reason I bring that up, because that's reality. That's the real world. We weren't living in a Skype room in a bunker. So we experienced that day. And you are talking about going to – different places as far as uh, football. remember going to Athens, Georgia back in the day, man, and I was called chicken salad slash chicken blank. And I try to turn that to to a a positive story. Maybe that's why Zaxby's came about. They got pretty good chicken salad. So maybe somebody there decided to start a restaurant. But And I'm a a Herschel Walker fan, so I don't hold that against Georgia. and you were talking about uh, Queen Elizabeth II. Boy, that media, man, they're fatuated obsessed with that. I mean, it's like a built-in elitism. I think they like that. They, they like the concept of, I am the fat checker, and you are the subject of a fat checker queen. 
Uh, I, somewhere along there, they like this, but I look at her as a real person. And she was born in 1926, and she's part of that World War II generation. So th- those folks had to go through all kind of stuff back in the day, and she had to live through that Battle of Britain, this, that. I look at being American first. Um, you know, when I think of Queen, I think of Queen Mary. And that was a troop ship that sent our soldiers over there to, to save their butts back in the day. Uh, so uh, hopefully they appreciate that. And one last thing, I was thinking there was a conversation she had with Ronald Reagan back in the 80s. And he said, you know, what's interesting about our country, United States, we have government workers that are incentivized to get people on government programs. And she looked at that and she was like, yeah, that's that's kind of interesting. And, and think about where we are 40 years from that that concept, and who are the Democrats? They are the government workers. They're the people that are on the government programs. They're the people that are in these unions for the government workers, the activist industries, these professors. I mean, that's, I mean, you can't live off of it. You got to have some kind of manufacturing industry. You got to have it in order to survive. So let's hope we're here. Uh, 70 years from now. Her reign was 70 years. Let's hope we're here 70 years from now. Have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. You know, I thought about that. I thought about the 70-year run that Queen Elizabeth II had and what America looked like at the beginning of her run and what has happened to our country at the end. I mean, she's been very consistent, right? I mean, she's um, she's had a career of dignity. And once again, it's still a, a hereditary monarchy. I mean, I'm not if – you, if you celebrate – I mean, if you're a libertarian Jeffersonian like I am – there's not a fondness you have in your heart for hereditary monarchies, but it is what it is. So, so fundamentally, we are a you know a representative republic. Uh, Republicanism would be our brand of government. Um, they're they're kind of caught between the two. I mean, she has no legislative authority, but she has a lot of influence. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And I think the one decision she made most consequential is when she chose, by and large, to be politically neutral. To, to understand that just because, you know, I have been the head of state of over 30 countries in my 70-year tenure as the queen um, doesn't give me the, the moral nor intellectual authority to go tell people what to do and how to do it and where to do it. But I did. I started thinking about, okay, and I think David brings up something I didn't consider. What will we look like in 70 years from now? There is, a, there is an element of intrigue with the American people about that. You know, this hereditary monarchy. Um, But it's not the monarchy we're infatuated with. I mean, I still believe that most Americans understand that she won the ovarian lottery, right? I mean, I think the majority of Americans say, but she hadn't abused it. I mean, she didn't neglect the responsibility. She didn't go out and trash, you know, the name. Uh, Some of the family members, they've they've had situations like most families have. And I think maybe, Rev, this is a, uh, you and I were talking last week, and I won't, I'll clean it up. This isn't satellite radio. But Rev and I were talking about these weird entertainers, you know, th- these extremely different sorts of people. Mm-hmm. And um, and we were talking about, uh, and I think something came up, and I'll, I'll clean it up. Well, they go to the bathroom like everybody else. <laughs> you know what I mean? With the queen, mm-hmm. the queen goes to the bathroom like everybody else. It takes crap like everybody else, right? There's nothing superhuman about that. Right, right. I mean, she's got to do what everybody else does, despite her. She's human, yeah, sure. Um, 
And 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 Rev says, I don't know that Dylan does. Because <laughs> we were talking about John Prine and Springsteen and McCartney and Lennon and uh, you know Woody Guthrie and Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard. And we're always comparing these notes about singers and songwriters. And we said, uh, I said, I don't care how great a songwriter they are. They, I mean, they, they, they don't escape the realities of humanity. I mean, they still got to go to the bathroom like everybody else does. And I said, I, I don't know about Dylan. Dylan, <laughs> Dylan might be one of those um, creatures from another world that the same rules that apply to humanity don't apply he's that to weird. him. Yeah, he's that weird. Uh, Queen Elizabeth was not weird. I mean, I, I didn't ever perceive her as being weird. Now, I'm not a student of, of the royal family. I, I'm not. I'm not you know, grounded in the philosophies of why it matters so much. It was odd to me that I read this morning, I actually read it in the Wall Street Journal, that 60% of the people who voted for in support of Brexit say they would have changed their mind had the Queen asked them to reconsider um, their decision. But she remained neutral in those affairs. And I think that neutrality gave her the dignity and the longevity or the respect of longevity that very often we get real um, tired of. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Oh, I, I agree with you, Ken, there. Uh, I think her moral authority was enhanced by her attitude toward things. But uh, I think we're uh, going back about the football, I, I don't see how it, uh, anyone out there can do much against Georgia's uh, offensive line. I mean, that's just a, a dream line out there. Uh, they're going to keep that quarterback safe. And uh, that's going to mean points on the go- board for Georgia against anybody they play. And uh, that that's my view on that. But uh, as far as whether we'll be here 70 years, I'm worried about another two years with the kind of craziness we're doing. This is kind of a suicide. I mean, we can't all be reality stars and uh, – uh, political representatives and uh, uh, middle managers. I mean, somebody's got to actually fix the plumbing, and they got to actually build something or grow something. That that takes some doing, and that is essential to maintenance. All of us got to eat, and uh, if we don't eat, we don't last. You know, if we pay, thank you, David. Appreciate that. I mean, uh, Mike, appreciate that. If we paid everybody according to what we can do or not without, in other words, I can do without this, I can't do without that. Who makes more, a plumber or a computer software programmer? You see where I'm headed. I mean, how would your life be fundamentally different if you didn't have a plumber? I mean, it was not indoor plumbing. I mean, imagine doing what Dilla doesn't have to do in the yard. <laughs> Right. You know, what, what if we didn't have indoor plumbing? I mean, Dylan's exceptional, right? Rev's, Rev's convinced that he is not human. He is beyond the point of weird mm. that, that he is a, um, I mean, we don't call him superhuman. What would he be? I mean, he, he would be some um, manifestation I, of distortion. Don't know what there, he there is. You there you go. He go. would be a manifestation of distortion. I like that. There's a good way to explain um, Dylan. We believe the queen um, operates under the same uh anatomy requirements that we do <laughs> we don't know that dylan does maybe that would be a good uh, episode for a show to come let's go to the phone here's davis in sumter listening to wdxy this morning hey davis good morning ken we've uh, we found out who uh, runs a sports program at the university of south carolina the ad doesn't have the backbone to do it the uh, president of the university is out making speeches to raise money and the uh Trustees certainly don't want to be called racist, but uh, 
she's not the first basketball coach to uh, have the tail wag the dog at Carolina. You recall uh, Frank McGuire not only got us out of a game, he got us out of a conference. Mm-hmm. And uh, what uh, – yeah, I have a, a grandson that I'm paying to go through Carolina, and I know you're paying for your daughter, but we're also paying – for a lot of students from other countries to come and take scholarships away from our own children. And I'll give you two examples. I coached high school tennis. Had a boy that got the number eight in the nation. Had several, uh, well, dozens of colleges were after him. He went and visited Carolina, and he came back and said, Coach, I, I can't play for Carolina. I said, why not? He said, nobody on the team speaks English. And he ended up getting a full ride to Stanford. Uh, another example, yesterday we had a, a big uh, college tournament in Sumter, uh, and I went out there, and as I walked through looking at the, listening to the matches, nobody spoke English. These were all students who are taking scholarships. Uh, you're paying your taxes, and I'm paying my taxes, but these scholarships go to people who can hit a tennis ball a little better than your child or kick uh, play rugby a little better or maybe soccer a little better but uh we don't get a fair shake because it's all in the sake of winning we've sold out to the idea that we've got to win at all costs and all costs means that our children who could play and get a scholarship don't get to play because we give it to a foreign student who can do something a little bit better thank you davis appreciate that you know i want to touch on that for a second um uh, uh, let's do it. I don't want to get too far behind. Let's take a break, come back. Hold on to Davis's comments. And, and remember the word resent. I mean, resentful, resentment is not a helpful emotion or a healthy emotion, but it's hard to fight against at certain times. Back in a minute. Give me a second to editorialize, which is all I do for four hours, pretty much. I mean, sure. you know, you're not held responsible to anything. I mean, you can be right or wrong, or, you know, you can be 50% right, 50% wrong. It's my opinion. I mean, here's how I see things. Um, Davis was talking about college athletics. Here's what you better be careful about. You ready? I caught myself this weekend pulling against schools in the SEC. I would never do that. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a, um, I mean, I'm in the fraternity of Southeastern Conference, the brotherhood. I mean, Tennessee is my brother. Um, Kentucky's my brother. Florida's my brother. When they play one another, who cares? I mean, that's two brothers beating up on one another. But when Pittsburgh and Tennessee play, I pull for Tennessee. When a, when, a, when a member of the fraternity of the SEC plays, whomever they play, I pull for that team until this weekend. And I caught myself pulling against teams in the SEC, and it's interesting that that resentment, I mean, without even thinking about it, Rev, I'm beginning to resent some of these programs that have so many assets and resources. In other words, amateur athletics at that level is not amateur athletics any Institutions. longer. Institutions. It's a, no question about it. I mean, there's millions and billions and uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. The coaches are making millions and millions. The assistants are making millions and millions. The players are now at certain places in certain positions making a million bucks. So when I'm watching A&M play, I mean, that's my SEC brother, right? I mean, I like App State, but I got to pull for Texas A&M because once again, that's big for the conference. The conference doesn't need to lose to App State. But I caught myself pulling against Texas A&M, and the only thing I can think of is what's happened different. A&M had the best recruiting class money can buy last year in college football, right? I mean, there, there's some reports that they spent about $5 million on the number one recruiting class in America. Maybe that's why. And, and I caught myself resenting that. 
And, and I think, you know, w- when you talk about these, these evolutions in college athletics and what is different today, well, I mean, the money. I mean, there's no doubt the money is different. And the NCAA made a grave error in not agreeing to give an inch and being forced to give a mile. So it's kind of the wild, wild west. We got transfer portals and free agency. I mean, the transfer portal is the equivalent to free agency in college football. You've got kids signing million-dollar bonuses with corporate and and personal interest. Uh, I think the Alabama quarterback, Bryce Young, who's a really, really, really good quarterback, got about a million-dollar signing bonus, so to speak. Um, And I caught myself uh, pulling against my SEC brotherhood because those other teams are I mean, they're, they're real classic examples of amateur athletics. Nobody at App State's getting paid. I mean, the coach isn't making $10 million. Dabo Sweeney signed a new contract. God bless Dabo. I mean, I'm not angry with Dabo for getting all he can. He's probably worth it in a crazy kind of way. In a twisted world of modern college athletics, Dabo Sweeney's probably a good investment at, what, $9.5 million a year? $115 million yeah, contract. $115 million contract wow i mean just say that out loud um nick saban's about a hundred million dollar i think saban's per year salary is a little more than sweeney's but they're both making unbelievable amounts of money and i think that's going to lead to resentment so when i'm watching a and m play and once again they're in the sec brotherhood i mean they're, they're, i can't pull against a and m right SEC, it just means more. I mean, it means more to you and me and every university and every institution. But I caught myself going, go App State. Yeah, you know what about I'd get emotionally interested. I mean, invested in the game. I mean, I'm kind of sitting on the front of the seat and uh, don't do that. Yeah, do that. Don't do this. No, yeah, do that. And, you know, first down. Yeah, yeah, stop them here. And I'm going like, dude, I'm pulling against my brotherhood that I never would have considered. But but I think the money has really begun to create this resentment against certain teams and institutions because look, guys, if it's all about the money, nobody beats A and M in Texas. But it really and truly, if it's all about the money, and it is a if the football hierarchy is is guarded and and measured by who gets the most money, forget it. I mean, there are four or five or six schools: Ohio State, Michigan, Southern Cal, Texas, Texas A and M, University of Florida, Georgia to some degree. But those schools have tremendous. Um, Numbers of alumni who have done extremely well, especially in Texas, uh, the Jed Clampets of the world, that bubbling crews, you know, bubbling crude has been good uh, to those schools in Texas. But but I caught myself going, pulling for the little guy, even when they played members of the uh, of the SEC. Let's go to the phone. Ray in Florence. Good morning, Ray. Uh, yes, this is Ray Kingsbury. I was calling concerning our meeting tomorrow night at the Florence County uh, Republican Party. We're going to be meeting at the McLennigan High School Auditorium. It's uh, and uh, it'll be starting at 6:30 with refreshments. Uh, Dr. O'Malley is going to be speaking along with some, uh, one of his uh, his people, talking about uh, some of the progress in the school. I just want to give a shout out to encourage people to come. Thank you, Ray. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. Somebody else on the phone? Ashley in Poston's Corner. Good morning, Ashley. Good morning, guys. Um, it, your last caller, I mean, he was talking some about resentment. He was also talking about how uh, international athletes get uh, a, a, a scholarship at colleges. Uh, I went to France to Marion from 1998 to 2002, and – Half of the golf team was from South Africa. 
half of the or half of the soccer team was from Argentina. Um, the South African guys I got to know because they were in some of my business classes, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember one day one of them asked me, say, hey, what did you do this weekend? I said, well, you know, I cut the grass. I trimmed some bushes. You know, my mom wanted me to do X, Y, and Z. And he looks at me and he says, hey, you don't have a garden boy to do that for you? I'm like, I am the garden boy. I'm the garden boy that does that stuff. He's like, well, we got three maids and a garden boy. So the, 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 the folks that were getting the full scholarships for golf and for soccer, et cetera, et cetera, had a, a good bit of money to, to pay tuition. And Francis Marion was shipping them in from South Africa. And that was John Brown 20 years ago. And I'll take it off the phone. Thank you, Ashley. Appreciate that. It's kind of an interesting can of worms to open up. What do we think about foreign athletes receiving athletic scholarships at institutions of higher learning, state-supported, publicly funded institutions of higher learning? I mean, isn't it kind of a meritocracy? I mean, if you're good enough in soccer and if Francis Marion or Carolina or Clemson or Coastal makes a commitment to be good in soccer, the coach should be allowed to go get the best players they could or can under any circumstance? Or, or do we say, yeah, just don't go to Argentina? Don't go to, you know, to England. Don't go to Germany. I mean, I, I don't know the answer to that. I didn't know it was that prevalent. I mean, I know there are foreign athletes on college campuses. Of course, I know that. I mean, the NBA has kind of become, you know, the, the, the global league, so to speak. But if we believe in a meritocracy and you're good enough to play at a top-rated tennis program or soccer program or football or basketball, um, now football is not an international sport. Baseball, to some degree, is an international sport. Basketball, absolutely, is soccer, absolutely, is golf, and, and some of these other sporting events. It doesn't surprise me. I mean, I don't know. I don't have any idea. Let's use Carolina Clemson as an example. I have no idea what the roster makeup is of the Tigers and Gamecocks in soccer, but I'm guessing it's probably half who didn't come from America. I mean, would you agree with that, Rev? I mean, the football team's different. Baseball team's different. Basketball team's different. But when it comes to soccer or yeah. maybe even the golf or tennis team, I mean, I would, I would, I would speculate very that a lot international. of those, yeah, I mean, I, I would imagine it's a very international, um, international and diverse lineup of student athletes. Or do we like that or not? I mean, do we tell the, the the head golf coach at South Carolina, don't you go get those kids from you know other countries? And do we have the uh, the tennis coach at Clemson? Uh, you can. We want to compete, but we want to compete with American kids. I, I don't know. I mean, if it's if it's a meritocracy and you want the best players, no matter where they come from, um, is that fair to the taxpayer for the state of South Carolina? Uh, not, that's kind of an interesting can of worms to open, and I'm not sure where I land on that. Let's go to the phone. Bert in Florence is next. Hi, Bert. Good morning. I'd be happy to tell you where I land. I look at it like every other program that we hand money out to other countries instead of our own country. If we spent half the money on our own country that we spent on other countries, we'd be in a lot better shape. Cause you know, if I was trillion dollars in debt and was going to the bank to borrow money to hand to my neighbors, I think I'd be locked up and have my ability to handle money taken away. But there's another point on that too. We want the best person on the team and we go and, and lift more weight and we're all yay the team 
but the guy lifting the weight is pretending to be a woman. So is that fair to the women who are supposed to be running that team? Well, maybe it's the same view. If they're from another country and they're better, they're not representing our country and they're displacing our country in the same way. Thank you, Bert. Now, I mean, I don't know that. I don't have any idea if that's the case. Uh, let, let's do this real quick. You ready? I just did it while we were talking. Uh, I, got a, I got a little passcode here. Uh, Gamecock soccer team. You ready? Uh, and I could probably do the same thing at Clemson. The 2022 men's soccer roster at the University of South Carolina. Ben Alexander, uh, Jaden Ramsey Kelly, Will Crane, Junior St. Um, Juste, Ethan um, Deco Docks, Bryce Griffith, um, Lawrence Lilmos, William Nielsen, uh, Demoli Salami, Peter Clement, Rocky Perea, sound like a New Yorker, uh, Brian Banahan, uh, Logan Hitzman, Henry Weigard, Cristiano Brulletti, Logan Frost, um, Kosi, K-O-S-I-U Day, uh, Joey Bellandadaro, uh, Connor Bailey, Adam Luckhurst, Matt Bender. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what this means. Um, but I would imagine that it doesn't have homes or it doesn't have cities of which they reside. But um, <laughs> it's kind of an interesting <laughs> can of worms. I mean, if you're really going to scrutinize uh, higher education, I guess you could go to the nth degree and say, you know, it's publicly funded. It's a state university. Now, Philip Lowe said something interesting Friday on our show. Representative Lowe said they put money in the budget to freeze tuition. But but I, if I'm not mistaken, I think he said it was also to subsidize some of the tuition costs for in-state students. In other words, the they, they couldn't increase tuition for in-state students, but I think they could increase tuition for out-of-state students. And if anybody's got a kid going out of state, you know what I'm talking about. Or if you're out of state sending a kid, University of South Carolina, there's two sets of um, you know, tuition cost associated. But I think Representative Lowe said that they put some money in the budget so they could freeze tuition for in-state students, but not out-of-state students. Are we ready to say that only Americans can play on the Tiger, you know, volleyball <laughs> team or the Gamecock golf team? I, I don't know. Uh, it's a meritocracy. And if I'm coaching, if I'm coaching the Gamecock or Tiger softball, excuse me, um, soccer team, I don't want that job if you tell me I can't go get the best players no matter where they are. Do you? But are we America first? Well, I mean, I, an American I, I, citizens I, I first you. or not? I just said it's an interesting can of it worms is. to open and have discussion about. Uh, if I'm a coach, I don't care if I'm America first or not, and, and that kid can play and he can bake the grades and be a good productive student at the University of South Carolina or Clemson or Francis Marion or Coastal, that's the kid I want to go get. But should we have an allegiance or loyal? I mean, I think Philip just said they did by freezing tuition not for all students, but rather in-state students. Um, should we do something similar to encourage the student athlete to be you know, more American than they may be, less international on some of these Olympic and minor sports? Let's go to the phone. Here's Cocky Mike. Hey, Mike. Hey, guys. Um, am I wrong in my thought that I thought most, athletic scholarships were paid for out of booster club funds which is not that is not at all um public funds i mean that's people who the gamecock club covered x number of all of it am i am i wrong i think it's kind of a mixed brew mike from what i understand and i I remember spending a little bit of time in columbia there was a bill at the senate 
that, that tried to, I don't know, kind of clarify that. But it got, the more it tried to clarify, the more confusing it got. It's like a little bit of money from over here and a little bit of money from over there and a lot of money from here and a lot of money there. And this scholarship goes here. And I, I just remember trying to keep up with it. And the more I knew about it, it seemed the more confused I got. Well, let me tell you my comment on Don Staley right quick. Don Staley plays from the Obama playbook, which is to come out in protest. You know, a black guy gets shot by a white cop. Obama immediately says, well, we we got to get better. We need to be better. And then two weeks later, we find out the guy had two guns and a knife. That's the reason he got shot. Don Staley was, was playing from that same book. And I want somebody in a press conference to say, Don, why don't you have any white starters and you never have? Because um, I don't, I can't, I've been to a lot of games uh, in my life, probably 30, 35 games, and that's a lot compared to most, I guess. Um, and uh, I don't ever remember having a white starter. And I looked this morning when you started this conversation, she's got two white girls on the team right now. Both are from South Carolina. Both were high school standouts. They're both seniors, and in four years, they have combined 20 minutes of, of game time. And and I'm like, well, is, is there are there no? I mean, is this coincidence? Well, of course it's coincidence if you want it to be. Or is it, you know, is that a, a grotesque pattern to look at? I'll talk to you guys later. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Yeah, um, there's enough said there. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. We got a king. If I'm not mistaken, some of the wedding procession in Edinburgh, Scotland, <laughs> funeral as procession. we speak. Yeah, the funeral. I'm sorry, I say the wedding. Yeah. yeah, it was a long time ago with the wedding. <laughs> the funeral procession uh, is in um, Edinburgh, Scotland, uh, one of the 30 countries that has been under uh, the king's monarchy for the last 70 years. Hey, time for our Takes Mondays to Make Fridays trivia, sponsored by our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. 843-661-0937 is the number. The Georgia Bulldogs come a-calling this weekend. Number one-ranked Georgia. Noon kickoff, if you're a Gamecock fan, I think Clemson plays that night against Louisiana Tech. What is the river on the southern border that divides the great state of Georgia from South Carolina? 843-661-0937. The river that flows along the southern border Hmm. of South Carolina that divides this state from that state. Maybe it'll flood and the bus won't be able to make it into Columbia on time. Let's go to the phone. Someone there? Hi, you're on the air. Do you know the answer? It'd be Savannah River. Savannah River is correct. Who is this and where are you calling from? It's Mike in Florence. Okay. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate you calling. Appreciate you listening. Hang on for about a minute or so, and we'll get back to your revs having to do double duty here today because Mike is out sick. So, um, yeah, hang in for about 30 seconds. Mike will go, excuse me, Rev will get all your information. Thanks to Pepsi of Florence, whether it's Monday whether it's Friday, they sponsor this nonsense, and we couldn't do it without them. So Mike wins a couple of Takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirt and a six-pack of Pepsi product. Seinfeld is a show about nothing, a highly successful sitcom about nothing. I think we've proven today we are a show <laughs> about everything. There is no um, subject of which we won't take on. We don't understand them all, but it will certainly engage in a, um, a spirited conversation about whatever matter it is. I will say this, and maybe we've not done a good enough job. It's the day after 9-11, and I know never forget, always remember, it's clichéic, but as far as I'm concerned, it is the day that changed the way I live my life forever. People um, 
tragically lost their lives. Uh, a, a nation was kicked in the gut. And we have lived in a fundamentally different world since September 11, 2001. Always remember.